it's really nice to make your acquaintance on this show. Thanks for being here. Uh, you say that now, but the show's not over. <laughs> right. <laughs> Welcome to the RC Roundtable Podcast, where we discuss the latest RC hobby news, events, model reviews, and a whole lot more. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 169 of the RC Roundtable. And joining me is Terry Dunn. Hey, Fitz. Hey. And uh, the sharp-eyed people out there will notice that we're missing one person. Mr. Lee Ray was unable to make it this time. He has to uh, recuse himself from this episode for a very special reason, which you'll see in just a minute. Yeah. Uh, so I want you to really, uh, this is going to be an interesting episode, I think. <laughs> and um, we, we are very happy to welcome Mr. Bruce Simpson. To from the future, I might add. From he comes future. to us from the future. Yes, he's uh, several time zones away. Oh. <laughs> it's got a bad time there, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is Very Special Reason. Yes. <laughs> so Bruce, a.k.a. XJet, a.k.a. RC Model Reviews, has agreed to join us today. And we're really happy to hear him. Uh, uh, we both, Lee and I, Terry and I, have been following Bruce for quite a bit uh, throughout uh, I wanted to do it once. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, in the shadows uh, back there, yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's lurking in the shadows. Uh, Bruce is a very prominent YouTuber with uh, his both XJet and RC Model Reviews YouTube channels. And he's also had a website, which I've been familiar with for some time now. In fact, Bruce, uh, some years ago, I really came in to your uh, knowledge of your <laughs> antics, <laughs> uh, your personality. You did um, a review of the uh, high-tech Aurora radio. And just yep. some time ago, and I was really curious about that because I had picked one up, and I was really impressed with how he went through and explained how it did its certain, how it did its own uh, spread spectrum technique and scheduling of the channels and stuff. And I thought that was really great, and uh, I suspected uh, we can get into later that perhaps we, may, we must have a, an engineering background of some sort, because uh, I was really uh, really impressed with the detail he went into it. And uh, at the time, it was a really really good radio and it actually outperformed some of the other brands out at the time I, was, I thought that was great that you did that so uh it was really it's really nice to make your acquaintance on this show thanks for being here and uh you say that now but the show's not over <laughs> right <laughs> it's okay we're all friends <laughs> at least right now we are yeah yeah <laughs> hey happens. we're all <laughs> there's a big ocean between us there's a good <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yeah i shouldn't mention that bruce uh comes from uh, he's uh, a, a proud Kiwi from New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, no, I'm an, Aust I'm an Australian from New Zealand. Okay. okay. <laughs> we won't tell you Born in Australia <laughs> and moved here in 78, I think it was. So been here for a long time. Wow. Wow. Okay. It's a real beautiful country out there. So. It is. Yeah. I'm looking outside. Yep. Still is. Still is. Okay. Good. <laughs> the world hasn't ended yet. <laughs> no. Well, um, <laughs> if, if it does, we'll know we'll be well ahead of you guys because at the moment it is uh, just after two o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday. Right. And it's we'll Tuesday here for us. Yeah. Do you want well, the lotto numbers? If you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got tips what What's your cut on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, enough for me yapping. Uh, I'm going to let Terry take over and uh, see so he let him run the show because he's got the mess of wisdom questions. 
Iranians. Where's the missing Iranians? I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead, Terry. Well, as uh, Fitz suggested a minute ago, uh, part of the reason that Bruce is with us is because you're kind of a vocal critic of the AMA. And Lee was talking about a video he had posted for the AMA, gosh, I don't know, a couple months ago. And he mentioned a comment that you had made on that video. And I forget the how it all played out. But basically, through that, somebody said, well, you should just have Bruce on the show to talk about that. And so a few twists and turns later, and actually several weeks later, here we are. So, Bruce, thank you for helping to make that connection and interested to hear what you have to say. And I suspect we're going to find that we have a lot more in common in our opinions than differences. So we don't have to worry about that big ocean between us. Nice. So, all right, let's start off with first things first. Um, tell us a little about you. We already know you're an Australian in New Zealand, but uh, tell us a little bit more about Bruce the Man. Okay, well, I'll start from the beginning. I was born at a very early age. I was just a baby at the time. Uh, no, I won't go that far back. <laughs> I, I got into the hobby when I was probably seven or eight. A friend of the family bought me a little balsa wooden tissue uh, glider, which I built up and got really excited about the whole thing. And since then, I spent far too much time building and destroying and rebuilding model aircraft. And it's given me a great deal of joy over the decades. And the thing that concerns me at the moment is that we've got countries that are locking kids out of the hobby with age restrictions and because of all this paranoia about what these drones are going to do to the world. And there's not many people actually taking a stand. We've got a lot of influences on YouTube, but I seem to be the only one that's standing up, shaking my fist and, and rebelling against this massive over-regulation. So hopefully I'll get some you know, people seeing the light. I think a few people are starting to see the light. We've seen that uh, some initiatives coming out now to, to push back against over-regulation, but it's taking a long time. Right. And unfortunately, the longer you wait, the harder it is. Exactly. So. These are the best, you know, the, the best time to act is right at the beginning because once you're recognized as being a pushover, um, it becomes very hard to get around that reputation and people will take advantage of your, your um, unwillingness to, you know, um, step out of line. Right. All right, so I see some fixed-wing things behind you, and I've seen your videos where you're flying fixed-wing things, but I know you're also a multi-rotor person. So what's your primary interest in the hobby currently? It's everything, really. I mean, I've flown everything from Pulse RC to, to gliders to, you know, regular trainers and jets and the whole lot. Um, everything, the nice thing about the hobby is there's so much variety that you never get bored. You know, I go out and I fly my DLG. I might go out for two days in a row and fly my DLG until my arm's falling off. And then I'll think, well, I'll go and fly a drone now because it's, you know, I'm not going to have to exert myself. And so, yeah, it's the diversity as much as anything. Right. Yeah, I would agree completely. I have a, a big variety of stuff in my shop. I know Fitz does, and that includes cars and boats and all that. So all these things are at a scale and a price point that you can have that sort of variety, and and it still makes sense. So, all right, well, good. Thank you. And you know, Fitz asked the question a minute ago that your reviews suggest that you have a technical background. Do you mind sharing some of that? Yeah, sure. I, um, I'm a trained electronics engineer, so I spent the first part of my working life as an electronics engineer. Then I got into, um, what, what happened after that? I got into um, computer software because computers came along. I was in the, I liked the software better than the hardware. So I started writing computer software and then the internet came along. So I started doing things on the internet and then I retired because I, I built up a, 
a news network, which I sold for a fairly good amount of money. And I decided I shall retire. So then I bought a whole lot of metalworking equipment, started making jet engines, had a lot of fun with that. And then I YouTube came along and I put some videos up of some of my engine stuff and people seemed interested. So I thought, oh, I'll just make some more YouTube videos. And then YouTube themselves came to me very early on when they just started the, the partner program and said, um, would you like to make some money from your videos? And I said, yeah, why not? So now I'm a full time YouTuber. <laughs> All right. Fun. It sounds like you're a real renaissance man. If I knew what that meant, I probably would be. <laughs> uh, a man of many interests and talents. Many interests. Let's put it that way. Okay. And talents. humility, too. It's better than resistance, man. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, address the elephant in the room. Um, the reason why Lee is not here is because obviously with uh, Bruce joining us, we want to be able to talk about his opinions and suggestions about the AMA. And Lee is employed by the AMA. So we thought it prudent that um, we're not restricted by anything that that relationship with the AMA might present to us. So you know, in full disclosure, Fitz and I are kind of also employed by the AMA. We both write articles for the magazine. But uh, it's not our nine to five job. It's a side gig for us. So I feel completely confident saying positive and negative about the AMA. And I, I presume you do too, Lee, or excuse me, Fitz. So um, so that's why Lee's not here. Um, I'm sure he's anxious to hear how this conversation goes, but uh, he's uh, not contributing to it now. So with that, uh, let's get started. And you know, we're on that topic. Let's, let's go down that road. Um, Going back to that video that uh, Lee was talking about in a different episode, um, you had made a comment there and you've made comments in many of your videos about basically the AMA being a pushover in all this and how they should now and should have in the past stood up uh, more strongly against the FAA. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I've been battling the abuse of power all my life. And I've had started out with a lot of losses, but I had more wins than losses as I've had more experience because you learn from every encounter and there's no, you know, you lose a battle. You, what, how did I go wrong? And so you build up a little arsenal of, of techniques and strategies and knowledge that you use when you go into these battles. And I know full well that um, when Section 336 was being revoked, I knew that this was, as I've said so many times, a thin end of a wedge was giving the FAA power to to regulate. And then when there were all the hearings and... and um, uh, Rich was sitting there in some of the Zoomed meetings and, and he looked like he was asleep. And I thought, oh, this isn't a good look. You know, I mean, he's a nice guy. I mean, I've exchanged emails with Rich, but he, he was not being active and participating and being up there front and pushing the cause he was sitting back. And I could see there was going to be a, a pretty laid back thing. And one of the things I've learned with bureaucrats, especially in a regulation capacity, is that they say, you know, work with us. And more often than not, what they mean is this is what we're going to do. Don't object. And it's very tempting for any body that's trying to work with a regulator to believe that there's more to be had by working with them than working against them. And the problem is, in my experience, is certainly with aviation regulators, um, they'll tell you what you want to hear to keep you happy, and then they'll do what they want to do. And I could see that was what was shaping up with the the, the AMA and the FAA. And because when these initial meetings were held, they were loaded with commercial entities. You know, there was the, the um, Commercial Drone Alliance there, and we had all these commercial 
parties, there, the hobby was outnumbered by a huge amount. So whoever was representing the hobby had to be extremely active and, and push really hard, but they weren't. They were sitting there kind of passively. And the point I would have made is that at that time, we were over 90% of all the um, UAS use in the skies. 90% of all the flying was done recreationally, but we had one representative on that panel of, you know, um, couple of dozen people and I was thinking where is the in a democratic society representation should be proportional to population of a particular group you know but we had that little tiny thing and so that was very essential that the AMA stood up and said no because I think at that stage if they said no we are not going to accept this the FAA would have only had one option that is to say well we're going to shut down your hobby and then you can go to the public and say look they want to shut down a hobby that has had an impeccable record of safety over many, many decades, you know, Neil Armstrong, blah, blah, all that stuff. Roll it out then. And they didn't do that. So now we're in a situation where drones have, you know, the, the media's vilified drones, the regulators have vilified drones. And the thing that annoys me most of all is, I mean, I fly multi-rotors, I fly fixed wing, but there is a huge difference in risk profile between the people that go to the local AMA field or go to the park or the school and fly their little, you know, foam Piper Cub model and someone who goes down to Walmart, buys a DJI drone and tries to get pictures of airliners in the airport. The, the, the risk profile is different. When we go through the hobby through traditional means, we learn all about safety. We learn about the responsibility involved. We see what models can do if they're used incorrectly. And we have a pretty responsible attitude to safety. The guy that goes and buys his DJI Mavic at, at Best Buy doesn't have a clue. He's not buying a flying machine. He's buying a camera that he can move around in three dimensions. Totally different hobby. Normally, the people that are doing this, that the hobbyists from the photographic or video background, they're not they're not interested in the fact how does it fly and and you know how does the wind affect it. They just want to know I want to put my camera over there. So it, the fact that the regulators lumped us in with them was a huge injustice, and the AMA should have stood their ground then and said, no, we are not the drone operators you are looking for. We are a hobby. Look at our record of history, safety. Back in the 40s and 50s, you had some of the Plymouth and, and I think it was Chrysler sponsoring the AMA Nats. That's how right. much they were part of the American dream. Yeah. And now yeah. you're and saying- the Military oh, no, sponsored it. Yeah. yeah, now you're all villains and you must be regulated like these people that are trying to knock airliners out of the sky with their drones. That's where the line should have been drawn. They should have just not given any from that, say, we demand that you regulate us separately because we are not the same group that are causing the problems. But they didn't. They just allowed it to, you know, everything is everything is a UAS. Right. Yeah, I mean, saying the same thing where we were lumping, uh, you know, semi-autonomous uh drones with your know, traditional model aircraft didn't make a whole lot of sense and some of the response we got back was that the faa just was not willing to negotiate that at all they had they were or the FAA government was just was not willing to make that distinction they flat out said no right yeah our suggestion all along was the division shouldn't be long weights or anything like that there should be gps and non-gps because that makes the difference between an educated user and someone who could just walk in off the street, like you said. And uh, I agree with your point uh, 100% that if you don't have to learn how to fly, you're also not learning the etiquette and the safety that goes along with that, which has traditionally been how things go. You're learning how to move the sticks, but you're also learning how to play nice with others. So an interesting point here, you bring up the, the camera flying stuff. And from my perspective, Initially, that was the impetus of a lot of this from a safety-related standpoint. That's where the registration came in. That was always their thing. And back in 2015, 2016, 
I forget how many thousands of drones DJI was importing every month, but it was a huge number and it looked like it was just going to keep going. I think not only has it plateaued, I think we're far on the backside of that slope where there are probably more Phantoms and Mavics in the garbage dump than there are yeah. being flown now. So I don't think peak, that- We've reached peak drone. Uh, right, and I think- <laughs> Saturation. And well beyond. So I don't think that presents the threat that people were predicting it was going to anymore. And now what I'm hearing is that it's security issues and and things like that. So yeah. the the boogeyman has shifted. Uh, yeah, do you know why they've done that? It, it, that's happened because we had all these predictions of, of all the dangers and the, the, the risk these drones were to airliners, to, to public property, to people and persons. You know, drones were going to be a, a major menace to everybody. Now we've got 10 years of evidence that say they're not a risk. No one's been killed. Not one person has died as a result of the recreational use of a multi-rotor drone. So the FAA can no longer play the safety chorus. You know, oh, it's not safe. Now it's about security because we've been proven that safety was just we were incorrect. And in fact, if we look at it, you can understand that they bring in some pretty stringent restrictions and regulations when they're unsure of how unsafe these things are. So you overregulate on the basis that it's better to be overregulated and safe than to underregulate and have too much risk. But now we've got 10 years of evidence, it's time to adjust the regulations downwards to be proportionate to risk. And they don't want to do that. So now they're saying, oh, it's all about security. DJI is going to send all our pictures back to China and, and the cranes that we've got in the ports made in China have got cameras on them. And, and, and it's like, one thing I've noticed is um, looking from another country is probably a useful insight, but I get there very much the impression that the USA has a mental health problem. It's called paranoia. Maybe it's justified just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're out to get you. But they, there seems to be this this whole thing that everybody's spying on us. Everybody wants to you know attack us and whatever. I mean, I think it's perhaps a little over the top. Maybe I don't. Maybe this is true. Maybe they're all trying to do this. But again, I think we'll find in another five years time that the security aspect is also being grossly overstated because I often see people saying, oh, these drones are being used to, to um, deliver drugs and phones into prisons. Yet if you look at the actual data, most of the drugs and phones in prisons are delivered by prison guards. But we don't bother worrying about that, do we? We don't. Well, let's look at drones. It's more sensational, you know. And or drugs, you know, drugs are being, you know, moved around with drones. No, mostly they go in the back backseat of cars that are driven down freeways. It's like overstating this whole security risk thing when, in fact, like with the safety, it, it's just a, a it's a red herring. So, why do you think they're doing that? Because, well, I'll tell you, this is now this may sound like a conspiracy theory, but I've looked very, very hard. In 2013, Jeff Bezos said, we're going to start delivering stuff by drones and we'll probably have our first deliveries underway by 2015. Well, it's 10 years later and they're still not delivering anything. But what's happened is the airspace we use, that zero to 400 feet, it was worthless. It's too low for safe manned aviation in, in most areas, apart from, you know, perhaps a little agricultural work. So mostly manned aviation was above that for safety reasons. Suddenly, with the prospect of making money out of commercial drone use, that airspace has become incredibly valuable. There is a value associated with it. And that's why when we look at all these regulatory committees, it's all commercial entities. You've got Boeing, you've got everybody, all commercial players, because they realize that this is now valuable. We want to have some control on it. Where's the hobby? And the latest, um, what is it, AAA, used to be the one of the ARCs. AIA. They said, oh, you've, you've, got, you've got two recreational representatives on, the, on this um, committee. And it was Vic Moss and Kenji. But they're not 
solely recreational. Vic and Kenji both have commercial interests. So they're not solely from a recreational perspective. We are still over 80% of all the RPAS operations or UAS operations in the air in the USA. Now we have zero representation, not even rich there to have a snooze while everyone's talking. No representation whatsoever. This is because it's now a commercial a uh, commercially valuable piece of real estate in the air, and that's what they want. We're in the way. We're, we're causing problems. And a lot of the drone companies and the the um, air taxi companies, the eVTOL companies are saying, we can't properly do what we want to do until the airspace is clear because there's no proper air traffic management system. We need these pesky little hobbyists out of the way and all these other people out of the way so it's safe for us to do our operations. And so it's, it's dollars money talks, dollars talk. That's why the politicians aren't listening to us because the you know the big corporations with their big wallets and their powerful lobbying ability, you know, they can do whatever they like basically. That's I mean America has the best government money can buy and said jokingly, <laughs> but it's incredibly true. I think anyone would have yeah. to acknowledge that. So sure. this is this is the problem. Once dollars come into play, some kids playing with their toys in a park, they're just gone. Right. And the irony is all those companies vying to buy that section of airspace can't see that it's uh, basically a suicidal plan because once they make that um, inaccessible to kids, they've lost the gateway that's all the engineers and the users for this thing that they want to do. So 10 Absolutely. years down the road, they're, yeah, they're stuck. Well, look, in the UK, you cannot own a model aircraft more than 250 grams until you're 18. You cannot get an operator ID, which is necessary to be responsible for that craft until you're 18 years old. In Whoa. Canada, it is 14. Until you are 14, you may not fly a drone or model aircraft unsupervised because you cannot sit the um, the RPAS certification necessary to do it legally. They're, screen they're blocking kids out of the hobby. Kids can't do it. You know, And I mean, when I started, I, I was, I'd go out and fly on my own. I had no other friends that were interested in model aircraft. My parents were always too busy to help me. So in that situation, if that was today, I couldn't enjoy the hobby. Right. And as we mentioned before about the the way this hobby allows you to experiment with all those different facets of things, that's it. When I was a kid, that was my hands-on learning tool for the curiosity that I had about aviation. I could make a glider. I could change things about it. I could see the cause and effect. And I learned probably more in those experiences than I did in any of my college engineering courses. So those are lessons that really stick. And, and we're trying to yank all that away over silly stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, a, the risk is unproven. The risk is actually proven lower than was estimated. Now we've got this national security thing. It, these are all just, um, you know, um, red herrings that are raised to justify. Because ultimately, if we look at the two big players in the drone delivery market, we've got Google. Google Wing, and they've got these delivery things. Right. And we've got Amazon has announced, you know, there's a big player. They're still a big player. And if you look at those companies, what they make their money from, it's not from delivering stuff. It's from providing services. Amazon Web Services is their biggest earner. It's providing electronic services to a market of users. Google, they provide the services, you know, that we use through the internet and all that sort of stuff. So the service providers, they don't want to deliver stuff by drone. But, the, you know, speaking to a lot of people in the know and a lot of people behind the scenes, what's happening is Google and Amazon are both working on UTMs, you know, this unmanned traffic management system to control this sub 400 foot airspace once all these drones are there. They will be selling the service, pitching it to governments around the world, saying this, you know, drone delivery is going to be huge and all these air taxis, you need a control system that will keep it all safe. And we've got the thing for you. So they're going in there to create a perceived need for this UTM. 
And right. once the, you know, by saying, look at it, you know, we've got all these drones and then they will sell that UTM to the various things and make the money out of supposedly clipping the ticket. But as we've seen drone delivery, we're a long way from reality. The commercial reality of drone delivery just does not stack up. We've got Google Wing delivering coffees, you know, and people are saying, but look, they've done 100,000 deliveries in Australia, um, you know, delivering coffee and bread. And I'm saying, yeah, that's fine because they're not charging anybody. It's all free at the moment. What happens right. when your $4 coffee comes with an $8 delivery charge? Are you still going to get it delivered by drone? I don't <laughs> think so. And yeah. so it's easy, to, it's easy to sell stuff for free. It's much harder to sell it when you've got to recover the costs. And as we've seen in Australia, this thing like birds can bring down a drone. Now, there's magpies in Australia and they've attacked Google delivery drones. Kids with fishing rods have reeled them out of the sky. If it's too windy and it, or it's, it's raining, there are so many things that get in the way of delivery drones that they're still not practical. Commercially, they're not viable. Yeah, you can deliver stuff by drone, but you can't make money doing it. And if you can't make money doing it, nobody's actually going to do it. It's not a charity. It's a business operation. So what I fear is that, you know, we've had this network remote ID NPRM in the USA. And when you look carefully at what happened there, the FAA come up with this network remote ID where we'd all have to get an authorization token before we could even arm our models. But you know, you couldn't arm it with that. It was built into the technology, forbid you to arm until you got the the arming token from the UTM. Um, and the, we had these thousands of submissions, 60,000 submissions, many of them saying, no, no, no. And then the FAA turned around and said, we've decided not to go with network remote ID. And everyone goes, oh, and then they said, at this time, very carefully, looking at at this time, very carefully. So what they were saying actually is our technology partners have said, we cannot provide you with the ubiquitous communications coverage you need to make this work. So the FAA said, well, we'll take a step back and we'll go with broadcast, get people used to the concept of remote ID. And then as soon as the technology is there, you're all going networked. And right. as I say, what, what's going to happen is this is going to be based, the UTM providers will come in and sell Amazon or Google will sell the UTM to run this big network remote ID thing. Uh, but we're not going to have all these drone deliveries, all these air taxis and things. It's just because the commercial viability doesn't stack up. So then you're left with a hobby community using this UTM and not many other people, but it has to be paid for. So who do you think is going to end up paying for this giant folly? Us. You know, you want to fly? Well, I'm sorry, it's a dollar to arm today. You know, every flight's going to cost you a buck and you have to put your credit card details in and you can't fly until you do. When I was probably, I think, 12 years old, I remember my grandfather saying, one day they'll, one day they'll tax the air we breathe. I think we're just about <laughs> at that point. <laughs> it was a Beatles song, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, so you know, here we are in this situation. And speaking of the, the FAA kind of pitching technology that doesn't exist, that's the remote ID in general. Two years ago, they said, Everybody's going to have to have remote ID. Here's this vaporware that's going to cost $50. Nobody's made it yet. We don't know if we can make it yet, but it'll probably be $50 or less. And so far, the cheapest we've seen of the very few that are actually available are somewhere $200 and up. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how that might impact the decisions that are made. Well, this is stupid because they also say, oh, we need remote ID for security. Remember when they bought out registration? Ah, oh, this will make people accountable. It'll make the thing, make the whole place safer. Well, I don't know of any instance where registration has actually tracked down someone who's done something bad. Um, right. If you're going to do something bad, you're probably not going to register for a start. <laughs> exactly. So it may catch the odd negligent person, but there's not that many of them. Look how many um, drone incidents are being reported in the media these days versus how many manned aviation incidents there are. We've had three instances where airliners have almost had catastrophes banging into each other on runways recently, just this year so far. How many right. instances in the US have there been of drones endangering manned aircraft? Virtually none. I don't know of any, actually, where they drones in America endangered manned aircraft. So from that basis... Uh, manned aviation is riskier. 
it's it's less well behaved than drone operators. So, yeah, but the whole thing with remote ideas, they're saying, oh, this will do what registration didn't do. Hold people accountable. Look at it this way. You've got if, if we do have Amazon drones flying around, let's say you get a police drone. You know, the police are out there with their drones doing their stuff. They've got remote ID. You've got a receiver. You capture that signal. You then start your own drone up and you spoof that signal. So as far as anyone's concerned, your drone's a police drone. How's that reducing? You've, you've got a free ride now. It's like changing plates on your car. You know, it's, it's so easy to spoof that suddenly you can masquerade as a police drone or as a um, hospital emergency delivery drone, and no one's going to intercept you. They think, oh, you're on a good mission. So whereas a bad actor previously might have created a suspicion, what's that drone? We don't know what it is. Let's check it out. Oh, that's a police drone. That's an ambulance drone. We don't have to worry about it. And there it goes with its you know, bad intentions and does whatever it needs to do. It's not, it has not been well thought out at all. <laughs> Right. And yeah, I think they're all paper tigers that don't really address risks that aren't real to begin with. So it's uh, just a calamity of errors here. Yeah. But kind of getting back to the original uh, question that was embedded in all this. So it would have been better to resist five years ago. But here we are now, 2023, the FAA pretty much has their foot in the door of what they want to do. And yes, there are other government organizations helping to drive this, but in my mind, the FAA is our interface. So they're the, the mean bully that we should be dealing with primarily. Um, what recommendation would you have? Let's say tomorrow you are elected the AMA's government representative. What stance and what actions do you take? Well, I'd be pretty militant because I've seen what's happened. I'd probably go to the FAA and say, right, we now demand that you separate out the traditional hobby from the store-bought GPS guided drones because we've got 80 years of hard evidence that shows we are not a security issue, we are not a safety issue, we should not be treated as such. And if you do not do that, then we're going to withdraw from any agreements we've got and you will have a lot of people out there who will have lost their hobby. You'll have to explain to the public why you have cancelled one of the safest, most educational outdoor hobbies um, kid-friendly, family-friendly hobbies, there is. And you can't do it on the grounds of safety. You can't do it on the grounds of security because we've got the evidence to prove otherwise. You'll have to have, you'll have a political bun fight on your hands. If you choose to do that, do it. But I recommend that you decide to actually look at the evidence and act so that the regulation is proportionate to risk. And do you think that is a bad idea? Put the question, tell us why that's a bad idea. Right. So basically, in my mind, and probably in everybody's mind, that's what the FAA wants. They would just as soon get rid of all of us tomorrow if they thought they had a good reason to do it. So your suggestion is to, to voluntarily do that, whether it's a bluff or not, um, but to make them justify that. I think the risk in that approach is that the general public's gonna care enough to get behind us in that fight. I don't think they care about drones. I mean, people, it's been vilified to the point where anyone with a drone, oh, you're just trying to spy on my daughter by the swimming pool, you know, oh, terribly delivering drugs into prisons, all that sort of stuff, because these drones have been so, you know, badly misrepresented. But the traditional hobby of some kid, get the AMA footage out of the archives with all these kids lined up with their fathers at the nets with their rubber-powered models and, you know, having fun. And and, and if the AMA's got a budget for, for PR and promotion, Get a video showing just how much fun this hobby is, how innocent and how harmless it is, and how it leads, as they've done before with when they had the uh, the NPRM, how it leads to careers in aviation and engineering and things, um, and and roll that out so the public sees that. Because the one thing that the public do not realise, and I've I've asked many many people, and everybody thinks like behind me um, that they don't know that that whoops is a drone. 
That's a model airplane. It's not a drone. They don't realize that no difference to the government. They, the FIA considers it to be a drone. If they realize that the, 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 this was considered a drone, they'd have a totally different perspective on this whole thing. That's why I'm making a video myself where I'm going out with a Phantom, going out with a, hopefully a little Piper Cub or something, some non-military civilian fixed-wing foamy, and saying, point to the drone. And when they point to the Phantom, I'll go, what about this? And they say, it's a model airplane. And then educate them. Do you realize that, in fact, you know, I was investigated here in New Zealand for breaches of the rules by our regulator. And the guys that investigated those alleged breaches of the rules, the investigators on the staff of our Civil Aviation Authority, they were unaware that the same rules applied to drones as model aircraft. And these are the people who enforce the rules. They didn't know that. And they were surprised right. to learn that. They thought they were a different set of rules. That's And the public's under the same perception. They don't realize that the hobby is being regulated just as if we were all evil phantom or Mavic flyers with the intention of bringing down airliners. They just don't understand what's going on under their very noses. And if we can educate the public, remember, it doesn't matter how much the politicians are in the pockets of big lobbyists. In fact, that works to your favor because... If they've got lobbyists pouring money into their back pocket, the last thing they want to do is lose their seat in, in power because then they don't get that cash flow. So the public still has the power to do this. We need a really big PR campaign with the public. Win them over. We're not going to win them over that that Phantoms and Mavics are, are wonderful and great and you know fr friendly, but we do have the traditional hobby. And almost everybody I've spoken to, certainly men anyway, um, have had an encounter with model aircraft during their formative years. And there's been a positive one. They, yeah, I built model aircraft when I was young. Yeah, yeah. Bring that back and say, well, do you realize now that it's it's being, you know, um, regulated out of existence? They're now called, called drones. Get the public on side. Get them aware. This requires everyone to do the job. You know, when I go out and I fly FPV or go flying in the parks, I take a spare set of passenger goggles. And when people come up, sometimes they come up, what are you doing? What's that drone? I say, hey, look through here. And they go, wow, that's amazing. Oh, hey, can I get one of these? You know, educate people, get them involved and, and show them that we're not people who are bad actors we're actually just family friendly folk who are just having a good time with toys and they are toys but isn't what you say because in new zealand here um you know this thing here is regulated every bit as much as a 14 kilogram octocopter with a red camera on it same rules exactly the same rules no no fact that this weighs 20 grams and the other thing weighs 15 kilograms irrelevant in so fact, there's I, no weight threshold for the there's rules? There's no weight threshold here. We have some good rules and bad rules. All countries have good and bad rules. In New Zealand, we have what are called shielded operations, which means you, if you're flying below the level of the trees, um, then you can fly closer to airfields and things because uh, there's not going to be airplanes flying under the local park, you know, in the local park under the trees. However, we have bad rules such that we do not have, we before we can fly anywhere, we must have the permission of the property owner. We have no rights in terms of flying over other people's property. And that is a real pain in the ass because it means the entire country is a no-fly zone unless you are flying over your own property or an area that's already been allocated for that. It's really restrictive. So everyone's got pros and cons. I love Canada in respect to the fact that sub 250, there are no prescriptive rules. Now, in Canada, I can do what I like with this thing as long as I don't endanger people or aviation. Brilliant. I mean, I can fly BV loss. I can fly FPV without a spotter. All the things that I want to do, I can do it. And if you look again at the hard data, I'm always keen on providing evidence and hard data. In Canada, I've seen no evidence of any deaths, any major injuries or any property damage as a result of people flying sub 250 gram drones with no rules. So why would weight make a difference? If it was to go to one kilogram, why would suddenly people say, oh, this weighs 750 grams more than that. I'm going to go and do something bad. They're not. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I definitely want to touch on that one kilogram push that's happening now, but uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, so to address your recommendation from a minute ago with you, Bruce, as the AMA's government uh, liaison, 
The only problem that I see with that is that I think that task of convincing the public is, in my mind, more difficult than you're making it sound. And maybe that's a difference in the cultures between the USA and New well, Zealand, good. but... It's good. The more difficult a task is, the greater the satisfaction when you achieve it. And I see so often people saying, oh, that's too hard, and they don't try it. And when I see a hard task, I say, it's really hard, but if I achieve it, the goal is worth the effort, and I go and do it. And, and often, I achieve the goal. Well, in this case, you're putting all your chips in on this play, right? You're, you're betting the whole farm on this move that you're able to do that. And so yeah. that's a, that's a big game. That motivates so, people really well. Get, the members would be highly motivated with that face in front of them. And the other thing too is you got to look at what do we have to lose? What are we going to lose if we, if we don't do this? Because look at the freer situation. It's ridiculous. We've heard from um, people from the FTCA and, and FPV Freedom Coalition that the FAA is looking at allocating about 4,000 freers, right? Now, there are 2,500 AMA clubs and there are 115,000 educational institutions, and many of them will be running STEM programs that will require a freer. So do you think that there's going to be enough freers to go around, at least in the first three or four years? Because they're saying also four months to process an application. What do you think is going to happen? Um, the optimist in me thinks that the, the existing clubs will get preference on those. I'm sure hold that on, if, you look, if you look at what the AMA recently has been pushing STEM, 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 they're saying we were all behind STEM and they've had videos on their channels promoting STEM and we're pushing STEM. And if sure. they have to go to those STEM part partners and say, I'm sorry, we can't give you a freer because we're busy dealing with the hobby for the next 12 years, what's going to happen? Well, we don't have to get too deep into it here, but I think a school having a STEM program doesn't necessarily mean they have to have an on-site freer either. They could yeah, I think, partner with a local yeah. club that could host several schools. That go there, and I know of clubs around here that do that. Yeah, so. the thing is that in an urban environment, how many clubs have you know? I know one, one thing, for example, a lot of people have said we just go fly to Freer, but I say, well, when I was a kid getting started, I'd fly to the school ground or the local park because the nearest club field was like five miles away, and I was a kid without a you know, without any means of transport. And that that sure. would have cut the hobby off for me. And the fact that we're going to have these freers where, you know, if you want to fly without you know, without remote ID, the burden of remote ID, um, it, it's why, why what, are, what are we gaining from that? We're not gaining anything because as we said, there's no safety issue. There's no real security issue. The, the gain is, is, to me, I don't care what rules are enforced and put in place and enforced, but they must be justified. I want justification for a rule. No restriction without evidence to prove that it's necessary. And I haven't seen the evidence. Oh, I think we agree 100% there. These rules are stupid and pointless and only the those companies that want that airspace benefit because they put us in a tidy little box with a bow on top. Yeah, one thing are. that I, you know, there are many, many new disciplines in the hobby now. One of them is freestyle FPV and I, I love freestyle FPV and I, I can't fly very well, but it's as much the culture. It's like the skateboard culture of the 70s, you know, rebels and, and, and these people may be the savior of the hobby because they are the ones that are, are prepared to say, no, nah, it, it, these rules are stupid. I'm not following them. And that may be where things start to, to think because to be effective, rules must be complied with. And compliance is always voluntary. And if people say, I'm not complying with this rule because it's a stupid rule, you can't prove that it's necessary to ensure safety or security, then that rule isn't completely invalid. It's worthless. It might as well not exist. And we look back to prohibition in the 20s. We look back at um, cannabis reform. It, the governments of the world have said, oh, you can't smoke cannabis and it's a crime and, you know, go on your record. But people just kept doing it. And eventually the governments have wised up and said, well, we're looking a bit stupid here, making something illegal and people are ignoring us. We might as well take that rule off the books, you know. And maybe this this massive move to non-compliance um, would 
wake the government up and say, well, these rules are not very effective. And if our goal is, as stated, to ensure safety and security, and we've got rules that don't work, we need to revisit this. Yeah, I think that happened with CB radios too. In the yeah, podcast. CB radio as well. Yeah. And people say, oh, you know, the hobby is just a small population. You know, 40% or 60% of the population smoke cannabis and, and over half the population drank alcohol. We're just a tiny group. Well, CB radio was only a tiny group too. Right. Yeah, I agree. Everybody has their threshold where they're deciding that complying is no longer worthwhile or makes any sense. And related to that, not only is there the factor of people complying, there's the willingness of the enforcers to actually enforce these rules. So yep. I, I think they're hand in hand. Mind you, having said that, I, I, I gather I'm looking at the, the FAA's material. They are gearing up local police authorities to enforce their um, remote ID regulations. So they're going to be out there, you know, running around. One of the things that worries me is I watch TV. I know how American police work, you know, in, in the back of a boot and with the nightstick. Uh, but <laughs> it worries me that we're going to have a situation where small, small provincial, you know, police departments might be getting a cut of the fines and so forth. So they'll go out there and enforce them because it's money in the bank, you know. Um, yeah, I hope that's not the case. From what I've heard from people that are now at the local level, um, they don't foresee that ever becoming an interest for their department. Um, you know, we'll see what happens down the road as the FAA dangles carrots in front of them, but um, it doesn't seem to be a risk now. No, um, and, and my, well, my philosophy is if you're going to be non-compliant, there's two ways of doing it. You can be covertly non-compliant, fly under the radar, fly away from people, fly, don't attract attention. You, no one's going to worry about it, you know, because rules are a means to an end. The, the rules are there to try and make everybody safe and secure. And if you're being safe and secure the rule without the rules, then the rules aren't necessary for you. So if you're non-compliant, you're not causing a problem, you should be right. The other way is overt non-compliance, which is what I've done in the past, you know, flown this little thing around my house and, and challenged the local regulator to take me to court because I wanted to challenge this in front of a judge that this somehow flying this around my house represents a danger, but they wouldn't do it. They knew they if, right. I, if, if we appeared in court, they would lose, it would set a precedent and then all the rules would come under review and they weren't gonna take that risk. So in that case, overt non-compliance proved a point and meant that we gained a little bit of ground because we know now that if you're doing, in fact, the new director of civil aviation in New Zealand said, um, he started after this happened, he said, we are going to be focused on safe, focusing on safety issues, not technical infringements. And I think a large, large part of that was down to me doing this and proving just how stupid the rules can be at times. Right. Yeah, I think we're not far off from the FAA or whatever legal agency trying to set an example by somebody and then that person willing to stand up and say, all right, let, make me the bad guy, prove your point here. Um, and either they will or they won't. But, you know, that happened a few years ago with the Raphael Perker thing. Yeah, where he was yeah that was sort FBI. of the turning point, wasn't it? it was the now, at the time, the hobby was against him because FPV was still kind of the, the pirate side of the hobby. So it would be interesting to see how that same scenario would play out now. Well, also, Philly Drone Life, he, they've threatened with $125,000 worth of fines for flying in Philadelphia. Now, I have to admit, I probably wouldn't have flown where he was flying and doing the things he did, but yeah. I haven't. he's still going, and he's still doing the same yeah. things, and he's not bankrupt, so I don't know what happened there. Yeah, I don't know. He doesn't help himself with his no, comments. No, no, I mean, Or yeah, us. He, yeah, I think he, he's, I mean, he's larger than life, and that's his trademark is to, you know, I, I'm... I'm I'm a rebellious type, and I I challenge the laws, but I do it always trying to be safe, and I try and show that you know if you're going to break break the rules, then you, don't be stupid about it. Do it in a safe way because you can break rules and still be safe. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but then we had the guy with who put a, a, a pistol on his drone and fired it and showed it on well, YouTube. Right. Well, that might be the but that might be the way the hobby's headed in America because guns are protected under the Second Amendment. So in, if you, instead of putting a, a gun on a drone, you turn a drone, uh, you turn a gun into a drone, then you're probably safe. They can't ban that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that sounds like a good uh, segue <laughs> into another topic. Um, so we talked a little bit uh, a minute ago about Mac, and lately Mac in Canada, they pulled the rug out from under their hobbyist. You could say it was Transport Canada. I think Mac is equally complicit in this. Um, we've talked about it a little on the show, so I don't think it's new to the listeners. Uh, but what's your stance on that whole situation, Bruce? Um, I, I did a video saying Transport Canada, uh, um, Transport Canada had pulled the rug out. Um, it was their fault. It, as you say, it's fault on both sides. For a start, Mac should never have entered into that arrangement because it left them so vulnerable to Transport Canada just coming along without consultation or, or right of appeal or anything, just whipping that rug out and leaving the hobbyists high and dry. And that's what I mean. You shouldn't Rules that require an exemption to do what you've been doing safely in the past are not good rules. They shouldn't apply to you in the first place. And this is the problem in the USA. They're applying to the traditional hobby and they shouldn't be. And all these frees and things, they're effectively an exemption that the FAA is handing out. They shouldn't have to be, it's like saying, we're going to imprison everybody in the entire country, except if you haven't committed a crime. We'll just say, well, I'm only going to imprison the people that commit crimes. I mean, don't make it a blanket coverage and then ex, you know, exempt people out. Right. Just apply it to the people where it should be applied. But regulators love to basically say, you're all guilty but we'll treat you as innocent because they can withdraw that at any time, but they can't change the rules at any time without consultation. So it's, it's a way of short-circuiting the, the consultative process and, and all the mechanisms. It gives them far more power and control. I've seen this in bureaucracies and regulations before. The whole CBO thing is the same thing. The, the FAA, to change rules, has to go through that consultative process. But what they can do, now they've got CBOs, they've presented the CBOs, you must present something, a rule set that we will validate before we grant you CBO status. And once that's presented, you can't effectively change your rules without consulting with the FAA because it's no longer the original rule set, as I understand. You, you would no longer be compliant with the rule set you, you set. And also the FAA could come along and say, we now want you to have an altitude maximum of 300 feet for your clubs. You don't have to do it, but if you don't, you're not a CBO anymore. They can do that overnight. And suddenly, without changing the regulations, the model flying altitudes reduced to 300 feet. There's nothing you can do about it because it's not changing the rules. It's only changing CBO um, qualification parameters and they're not set in law. Yeah, I think there was a lot of hope going into this that the relationship between CBOs and the FAA would be similar to the FCC and what's that, the amateur Ham radios. Yeah, yeah. The radio league. Yeah, but which you talk, has, to has, yeah, talk to ham radio operators and see how they feel. A lot of them are really annoyed, really pissed off. A lot of them have left the hobby. Because they're constantly losing spectrum, despite that arrangement, they're losing spectrum to commercial interests. We're losing airspace to commercial interests. Well, yeah, there's probably a lot of nuance to that that I'm not aware of. My perception of it is kind of an outsider. I have my ham license, but it's almost expired. Um, my perception was that the FCC had basically given, they had delegated that authority to police themselves to that CBO and pretty much left left all that up to them without too much oversight. And I think we're hopeful that that same situation would happen with the FAA and whatever CBOs came up. Clearly that has not played out that way. And that's unfortunate. Right. It's just enabled them to insert another level of control through the CBO operations. And what annoys me in America is um, the, the ultralight and paramotor community 
virtually unregulated in terms of no registration, no need to have a radio or a remote ID or, or training or a license or anything like that. And we remember um, a guy landed an auto gyro, ultralight auto gyro on the lawn of the White House, who was an ex-postal employee, I think, ex-postman, and delivered a, a box of something or other to the president. And there was all sorts of, oh, this is terrible, terrible. But they didn't change any of the rules relating to ultralights. Yet one drone is found in um, the, the White House grounds, and the phantom crashed in the White House grounds. Suddenly, it's all a no-fly zone for drones. I mean, what is it a proportionate response to the to the provocation? I don't see it myself. Right. And I think it points back to what the real situation they're trying to address is. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with the White House. Now, <laughs> this this Canada situation has it raised a lot of questions. But in my mind, there's kind of a fundamental one. And what is the difference in culture between Canadians and Americans and New Zealanders, for that matter? Because this initially started with an email from Mac to their members saying, here's what's going on. Nobody can fly. By the way, keep it quiet. And I can tell you as an American, I think I speak for most American men when I say, if somebody sends me an email saying you can't fly and don't tell anybody about it, I'm sending that to everybody in my distribution list. Yeah. I got so, so many of copies of that email on the day it was sent out. <laughs> did, okay. Cause interestingly, yeah. from my perspective, it was hard to get information out of a lot of Canadians. And they seem to be respecting that wish pretty well. And there were certain people that I asked and they, they did not want to, to share any of that information. So again, I don't know if that's just a cultural difference or, or what it might be, but well, I it's interesting. Well, from the feedback I've got, speaking of some Canadians is that the, the, the Mac is very much like the AMA. There, there are two, populations in there. there. There are the old guys that go out the field on a Sunday and and tell each other how wonderful they used to fly when they were younger and get their hangar queens out and put them on the flight line and then dust them off and put them back in the car and go home. Um, and these are these are people not not really on social media. They don't use YouTube or Facebook or, or Instagram or anything. Their communication with the rest of the model community is via the monthly newsletter that arrives in the letterbox. A lot of those people in Canada haven't got the latest monthly newsletter yet. They don't even know this has happened. <laughs> so, um, right. they, and they're pretty laid back. They, they're just, oh, these young people creating trouble. We don't care. Just leave it up to the organization to organize things. You know, they've been good in the past. And then you've got the younger people who suddenly, you know, who are more active, more online, more willing to share their thoughts and be outraged. And they project a different um, viewpoint on things. And it's the, the, the ratio of those populations that determine the, the overall outcome. And the thing that's always worried me with this hobby is it's always in danger of graying out. Now, I, I'm so pleased we come, had come up with these things and freestyle drones and all that sort of stuff. It has brought a whole new surge of young people into the hobby. But until then, even in New Zealand here, it was graying out. Young people weren't coming in. They got Xboxes, Playstations. They've got all these other things they can do, which are much easier and more convenient and require less effort. Why would we bother by you know building model airplanes? So it's, it's, it's a worry. And now that they're being locked out, there's even more of a risk. We're just going to gray out. We're all going to be grumpy old men sitting on the sidelines complaining about everything that comes before us. Right. Yeah. And we're going to talk about flight test in a few minutes, but you know, I have very mixed feelings about flight test and kind of their, their current direction in the hobby, but no matter what they do in the future or what shady things they've done in the past, I have to give them full credit for doing things that a lot of people in the AMA thought were impossible. That is they brought yeah. young people in back into the hobby in a big way and they bought, brought a scratch building back into the hobby yep. in a huge way. So yep. a lot of people thought those things were just, remnants of the past, but uh, they've proven that to not be true. Let me um, take you back to the point where you said it's too hard to get the public to swing around. 
That was one of those things the AMA thought was too hard. But hard things can be done. You just got to apply yourself. Right. And so this is kind of disconnected from our current conversation, but that's what really makes me disappointed that flight test and the AMA can't find some common ground to work together, because I think that's going to be key if we're going to make any progress on this. Our numbers are so small anyway, that if we're kind of infighting with each other, we don't have a chance of making any progress against the well, FAA. The joint forces on this uh, lifting the registration limit, haven't they? I mean, I think AMA has said, I think Tyler said they're working with FTC and FPV Freedom Coalition now um, to, to get this limit raised. Um, yeah, I'm not sure uh, what the involvement of each is, but that's very promising if that's the case. So I'm Yeah, I'd expect the AMA to immediately do a mail shot or and an email to all their members saying, please get behind this and vo lend your voice to this campaign. But I'm a bit disappointed yep. in the campaign, to be honest, because it's this copy and paste thing, which is just, just oh, you get one chance to do it right, and they're doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> so, well, um, let's transition to, to that topic. Well, you know what? Before we do that, um, going back to the situation in Canada real quick, what do you think happens next? Because currently, um, I, I don't see how Matt can survive this. I mean, there are only 16,000 members strong anyway. And I have a feeling this whole move has left a bad taste on a lot of people's mouths about this. I think 1,600, um, 16,000, right? 16,000. Uh, 16, yeah, I think I saw 10,000 as another figure. I don't uh, know yeah. what the real membership is. So, yeah, the ballpark there. Yeah. And But the situation now is... Everybody has to register every airplane. You have to stay below 400 feet. Now, you did mention the one positive, that anything under 250 is basically without rules. But that's a pretty small window of the normal hobby spectrum of flying. Yeah, it, it's a mess because also there's the 400-foot limit, hard limit, no exemptions to the 400-foot limit. So glider pilots, turbine pilots, large-scale flyers, they right. can't really operate comfortably under those restrictions also you've got to have that uh, that maintenance log if you broke a rubber band oh got to put that in my log you know propeller brakes put it in my log screw came out tightened it up put it in the log it is ridiculous but what the canadians should do is they should keep those logs meticulously and send in by post by courier the full you know five reams of paper every month to the Transport Canada for the records. <laughs> yeah. Overload them, make them realize how stupid they're yeah, being. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing associated with buying and selling models, you have to right. track the purchase and the sale of models now. It's like it's, it's, it's almost like it's a restricted substance. So these things are so burdensome that I think they're going to have problems. And I've heard from so many people, we're just not going to comply. It's, it, right. You made it too hard for us. We'd love to comply, but we're just not that stupid. We're just going to go and do our own thing. Then there'll be the others who do comply, and they'll pr you'll probably find that they may drift out of the hobby once they realize the, the burden that's if they complied with everything you just couldn't do it and then there is the old school that is sitting there well, well they can still go out to the field on a sunday and sit around and talk and you know get their hanger queens in and out and um they probably don't care too much and mac will probably retain them as members but it might be a much smaller organization than it ever was before yeah i have a feeling that this is going to be the first litmus test of what mass non-compliance looks like and how it gets handled yeah well there's already mass non-compliance i love the way people say oh you know we're compliant how many FPV flyers have never flown without a spotter? How many? How many have never flown BV loss? How many have never flown above 400 feet? Everybody is non-compliant at some stage. It, it's not like it's everybody speeds occasionally, you know, and some of us get caught and get tickets, others get away with it. Non-compliance is already endemic within the hobby. It's just safe non-compliance. It is when you not, uh, fail to comply in a way that, in, that uh, produces a safety risk. That's when it's not acceptable. But we just accept the fact that if you want to go out and fly your freestyle quad in, in a forest somewhere where there's no one around to get hurt and there's no one there to be spotter, it doesn't matter. Right. 
So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out. And uh, I don't think we'll have to wait long. No, it's going to be because the spring's coming. They'll they'll get their models out of the snow and start flying them. <laughs> right. And from what I've heard, the proposed fines for those things are pretty hefty. So there's, like we said before, I think somebody's going to make an example, and then that's when the real showdown begins. Well, um, I think what the community should do is get together and create a, a pool, a fund, to cover the costs of those people that when the government's try to make an example of, when the regulators try and make an example, just pay the fines, there you go, and we're going to carry on, and you can keep fining us, and we'll keep doing it. But ultimately, you've got to tell your political overlords why your regulations are now very clearly totally ineffective. Right. Yeah, part of me thinks, at least in the US, that you know we know these things are being driven by the, the companies that want to have that airspace and the perceived risk of the, the military sees and the border control. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Just to interrupt you for a moment. Back in 2002, sure. I built a cruise missile in my garage here in New Zealand. I don't know if you remember it. Um, I built Absolutely. a cruise missile using bits off the internet and, and stuff and, and and built my own flight controller and everything powered by a pulse jet engine. And I, I did it to sound an alarm that this was now possible. Anyone with a few clues and you know uh, access to the internet could put together something that could be used as a, a weapon on soft targets in Western countries. Um, I got feedback um, from people within the US defense um arena saying thank god you're doing this we've been trying to tell our superiors this poses a risk for a very long time they're not listening and mm -hmm. indeed they still weren't listening and i got you know the the u.s government basically just said stop doing this you know not oh <laughs> we need to learn tell us how you've done it and no that go i'm gonna you know doesn't exist doesn't exist you know this is what happened and now 20 years later um they're saying the things i said 20 years ago except i have been looking and i've updated my thought and i've, I've realized that there are much easier ways to do this than the methods that I described. And the, the thing with extremists is that human life is cheap, not only the people that they are targeting, but also their own. Yeah, much easier to get someone with a jacket loaded with explosives walk into a crowded place and blow themselves up than it is to go through the process of setting up drones and things. Um, and the other thing is that if people are worried about drones, you know, delivering explosives in a, by a bad actor, you don't have a drone problem, you've got an explosives problem. Where are they getting the damn explosives from? Forget about the drone, because a drone without a bomb is just a drone, but a bomb without a drone is still a bomb. Right. So yeah, that goes to back uh, to what we said a little while ago, that the GPS guided drones that were gonna be in everybody's backpack five years ago, that's not really playing out. They're- I'm still waiting for the my lonely drone. Uh, right. <laughs> and, uh, and then I think the security risk that the government's worried about is really not going to play out. So part of me thinks that maybe our best strategy is to wait this thing out, to see that commercial drone delivery is not going to be a viable thing, and then let that die off and let the, the traffic control of that die off naturally after that. That's probably at least a 10-year the yeah, the problem. Flying that, low. Remember the scenario I described is that they're going to build this UTM, spend an enormous amount of money on this UTM, and they want to get something back for it. So who's the only people who are going to be flying? It's us. We're going to be paying for this massive UTM that no one except right. us is using, and so the charges will be really, really high because no one wants to take a loss on it, and so the burden of the cost will fall on our laps. And I don't think that's reasonable. Um, perhaps. I'm wondering if the freer thing is still an option, then, but. I guess my point is, I wonder if this thing naturally sorts itself out, no matter what yeah. we do now. 
It will over yeah. time. I mean, look, when cars first came out, you had a man with a red flag walking in front of it. And th th in America, they even tried to pass a bill that would require the driver of an automobile to dismantle it and hide it in the bushes on the side of the road if a horse approached, <laughs> so as not right. to startle the horse. Other rules required that you had to fire a gun three times in the air, uh, 100 metres from any um, intersectional crossing in case there were horses coming the other way too. The, the rules were just over the top because they feared. They feared the horseless carriage. But of course, look now, we still have some rules, but they're far more proportionate to risk. And just as importantly, in America, you're prepared to accept the death of 30,000 people a year for the convenience of driving a car. Right. Yeah, no, they wouldn't accept one death from drones. If one person gets killed as a result of a recreational multi-drone drone use, um, all hell will break loose. Right. Yeah, that's a good perspective. All right, now Fitz, I've been kind of doing all the talking on our side. Is there anything that you want to slide in here? He's gone to sleep. Ooh, man, you covered. <laughs> covered. <laughs> 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 oh, I don't know. You covered so a lot. Um, we did have a question. Uh, actually, I think we were talking. Does New Zealand have an equivalent of, of Rule Three Three Six that we had here? No, we're we're regulated by the um, by the regulate the airspace. We're part of the you know airspace users. We have uh, there's no cutouts for anything really at all. Um, so in New Zealand, they've just done something similar to what Max done, which is I may actually resign from our national model flying body because it puts the whole thing is just a giant mess. In New Zealand, if you want to fly large models or things, previously there was an allowance to do that, but now it's moved to the national model flying body has gained what they call a part. 102, which is like a 107 in the States, except it allows you to do more complicated and more, more potentially risky operations, such as flying larger models, uh, flying to greater altitudes, that sort of thing. So they've got this, um, this certification, which allows members to operate under this thing and, and fly at night and um, potentially fly BV loss or without a spotter. Um, the problem is, of course, that it is a certification, so it can be withdrawn without challenge, without appeal at any time by the regulator. And I don't like being in that position where I, it's been my experience over the years that it's the person, not the department, that matters. You get a good person in a, you can trust in a position of authority, that's great, they're wonderful. Then they resign or get moved off and someone comes in who's an utter backside and you have all sorts of problems. They, they, what's the point of me having power if I cannot abuse it? And so you don't want to be in a position where you're basically you know, reliant on the goodwill of the people who have issued you with your permission because there's no government oversight. There's no other watchdog body that controls this. It's entirely up to them. And I did a flight the other day. You saw the video. I flew over my house with the little whoop, you know, like this. And I perfectly safe. I explained all the reasons why it was safe. I got a warning letter from our national body saying that in doing that, I'm putting their ability to operate under this 102 um, certification at risk. And my position is I wasn't relying on any of the benefits that the national body offers me. I wasn't relying on insurance or any other benefit. So I was flying as an individual outside the scope of my membership. They're their perspective is whenever you fly, you are flying under our rules. And I'm thinking even inside, you know, but so I, I want to continue having the freedom to um, be non-compliant when it's safe to do so. But I can't do that if I'm a member of the national body because I'm then jeopardizing the benefits that are available to all the other members. So I may have no option but to resign so that I can continue my challenging the regulations without compromising the rights and freedoms of others who are bound by those regulations. It's it's just, I mean, I, and the thing is, when it comes to safety, I'm Mr. Safety, I invented this thing. I didn't have to have this thing, but we did it for safety. Um, yet, mm. 
if I resign from a national model flying body, I will no longer be able to fly to our local airfield because the, the certification that goes with being a member and having been tested, that lapses my wings. So I can't fly within four kilometers of an airfield and everywhere around here is within four kilometers of an airfield or a helipad. So my own flying uh, um, options are significantly reduced because I am safer than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting scenario. It is, yeah. Uh, that shows how badly the rules are. The rules are just totally useless. So I wanted to touch back at something you said earlier in that you need, in New Zealand, you need permission from the landowner to fly, uh, which is not all that different here in the States, except we have public land. Do you not, does New Zealand not have government-owned land or public yes. land? We have public land. There's a thing called the Department of Conservation owns a lot of the national parks and things. You can't fly there without applying for permission to do so. I think it's, in most places it's like $200 to apply, but that, that's just the application fee. If you don't get granted permission, you don't get your money back. And the, the justification they often give, give is um, drones could destroy the quiet uh, enjoyment of this resource. Yet if you go to these national parks, there's bloody helicopters flying overhead at little more than treetop with all these tourists and things. It's and this, dr this drone is going to somehow be more of a, you know, um, yeah, it's crazy. But in America, the FAA has sole control of the airspace. The, the local authorities have no control of the airspace. You know, you, right. you don't own the airspace above your house. But in New Zealand, it's the same. Our, our civil aviation has control of the airspace, airspace, but they have ceded control of that only in the case of drones to the property owner. So they have a column up to the stratosphere above their yep. house or above their yep, property? Yeah, for drone. Well, only to 400 feet because you can't fly over 400 right. feet. So sure. there you go. Interesting. And say there's, there's good and bad in all regulations. That's one of the worst regulations that we have. Huh. Uh, right, so if you don't mind me button here for, for a second, Fitz, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So Bruce, you're a person who expresses a lot of opinions on your channel. And by virtue of that, you're going to have people who disagree with you, perhaps equally vocally. So one of the questions slash arguments I've heard is, you live in New Zealand. Why the heck do you care so much about what's happening in the U.S.? Because nobody in the U.S. seems to. <laughs> I mean, it's honest. I mean, as I said, I look at all these influencers. They're busy making money reviewing stuff and, and affiliate links, and they've got all the, a wall full of quadcopters behind them. And when You don't see a wall of quadcopters here. Why? Because when I get a product for review, I review it, and more often than not, I give it away. Because I would rather have someone using that, someone getting benefit, introducing someone to the hobby than to have it sitting on my shelf gathering dust and doing nothing. I mean, that's my attitude. I'm not money focused. I don't sell them. I give them away. This month so far, I've given away a Radio Master TX12, a DYS quad, um, a couple of batteries um, to a guy that had been in the hobby years ago, wanted to get back in, but short on money. So I, I gave him these things. He's now flying. He wouldn't have been flying otherwise. And that, that drone had already sat under my bench for six months. And I thought, it's not staying there. It's going. So, yeah, um, I, I a little bit, I mean, so many people make their living out of this hobby, but they don't seem to be putting giving back in the same way that I believe they should. I mean, I have an arrangement with our, with our tax department, you know, because my activities are taxable. And they wanted to charge me as if every product I got given for review was income. You know, so I get a quad like this. You know, uh, the value of that is you have to pay tax on that. I said, I can't, I can't survive on that because, you know, it doesn't, you know, this, I can't pay my rent with this. I can't put gas in the car with this, you know. And so we come to an arrangement where so long as I do not sell any of the products I'm given for review, they are no longer classified as income. I can give them away, but I can't sell them. So I right. never sell anything. I only give it away. And I don't want 
to fill my room up with junk, which I may never ever use again. And I don't see that happening with so many others. It's such a, it's part of promoting the hobby and getting people into the hobby. You know, it's I've I've got probably I'd say over a dozen people into the hobby in the last couple of years by giving them stuff. Hmm. Well, that's a, a nice way to treat all those things. And I've done sort of the same. There was a time when I used to do a lot of reviews. Um, I often gave them away, but I'll admit I did sell some. And I, I never caught the attention of our um, tax organization. So <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't say this too loudly. Uh, but getting back to the original question, yep. the arrogant American in me kind of assumed that your interest comes from the fact that what happens in the U.S. might be duplicated elsewhere. Yeah. Is there any truth yeah. to that? Of course there is. Um, America introduced registration for drones, and our government is now very much going down that path uh, because, well, America's doing it. must be the thing to do, you know, harmonization of rules and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we've proven that registration hasn't stopped bad people from doing bad things, and we wouldn't need remote ID, would we? Um, so it's proven itself to be ineffective. So why would you introduce something that is proven ineffective? It makes no sense to me. Um, and, and the other thing is that, that I look at it from a global perspective, because if you're American, you're looking at American rules, you don't really take notice of what's happening elsewhere in the world. From my position, I can see what's happening in the UK and Europe and Australia and in the USA. And I can look at all the good points from those different countries, all the bad points. I can spot trends. I can see where things are going to happen again as they happen somewhere else. And hopefully I can bring a, a more global perspective on things. And, you know, people say, oh, you can, you have, you can say all these things because it doesn't affect you. Well, I, I don't just I don't just walk the walk. I, I talk the talk. I walk the walk. I, as I say, I engage in acts of non-compliance to show people how to do things safely, even if they're not, operate, not operating within the rules. I risk my own, you know, build, I, I could be fined and, and, you know, whatever, because I do things. Uh, but I, I believe the value I offer showing, you know, how I can fly around my house safely, even in breach of the rules um, and the points that are important. I believe that is, is a risk I'm prepared to take for the hobby. Um, people are just, I just... I'm a little bit disappointed with the level of selfishness that I see within the hobby, especially quite often from older people who are just happy. They've enjoyed the hobby for 50, 60 years. And now, you know, they're just not too worried about the future because they're just waiting for God and they're sitting around on a sunny day at the airfield. You know, I've, you've got an obligation to pay this forward. You've got to pay it forward. Or we're going to have this graying out. Kids won't come into the hobby. We have to work harder than ever now because there's far more things that kids can do. We need to attract their attention, bring them in. And this is where the, the aviation industry is really going to suffer in, in five to 10 years time when they're looking, as you, I think you mentioned, the new engineers, the new pilots, the new designers, there won't be any right. because they haven't been coming into the hobby. Right. The analogy that I've used before, and it may not make any sense to a New Zealander, um, but in the U.S. we have baseball, you have Little League. And so the analogy would be, what if they outlawed Little League today? Who the heck's going to watch a Major League Baseball game in 10 years? Yeah. There's going to nobody that's come up through that system to become good. They're all going to be amateurs. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be sort of the same situation. Look at the technology. We have done so much work in advancing things like flight controllers and cool, uh, you know, brushless motors and and the electronics and and the the flight dynamics of quadcopters, which is all being leveraged now by the commercial community. Look at ArduPilot. It's it's a it's an open source, homegrown flight controller software that is now just about in every piece of commercial and you know outside of DJI. So many of the commercial projects, even some of the people carrying ones, are based on ArduPilot. Um, right. It's come from the hobby, but we get no you know that's going to dry up too. If there's no one doing this work at grassroots for free, then what's going to happen? Right. And related to that, and this is probably similar to what I said before, um, going back to my time as an engineer, I could think of multiple more times 
that my experience in the hobby applied to my engineering work than anything that I ever saw in a classroom. So that is such practical, real-world experience that applies um, in, in everyday things. It, and to yeah. take that away, to me, I, I would have had a very different childhood in, in today's environment than I did in the 80s. So. Yeah, people will always learn far more quickly and more effectively if, they, if they're focusing on a subject they're passionate about. If you can't get, right. engage that passion at an early age, then you don't get nearly the same level of, of um, performance out of people. Right. Well, given this world perspective that you mentioned that you have, so among first world countries right now, who has it the best and who has it the worst in terms of RC oversight? It depends what you're flying, where you're flying and how you're flying. If you're flying a sub 250 gram drone, Canada wins hands down, you know, or sub 250 gram model, Canada wins hands down, you know, no regulations. Second would come the UK because they have quite a bit of freedom. They can fly over people, they can fly at night, they can fly over property without any restrictions at all. And um, then probably comes the USA because you you, you have, um, you can still fly at your local park, you can still fly at your school grounds and so forth. Um, Australia was pretty good, but now they've, they've just gone stupid. Um, and FPV is illegal in Australia. Technically speaking, it's illegal to fly FPV unless you're at a um, a CASA approved site. So you can't just go down the park and fly FPV. You can't go on your own property and fly FPV uh, unless you get a special certification to do so, exemption and so forth. It's ridiculously over-regulated. Um, here in New Zealand, we haven't got it too bad, but the fact that you can't fly anywhere without permission is just a killer. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, there's so many uh, people that can't find anywhere to fly. And if they're 50 miles from, well, not 50 in this case, probably about 20 miles from the nearest flight you know, field it, and they don't have a reliable means of transport, what, what can they do? Can't even fly one of these around their house without tape and cones and security people on the fence. <laughs> right. All right, that's you have interesting. Any idea how many active modelers there are in New Zealand? Yeah, the, I think the national body has about 2,000 members. But in terms of people who fly models, it's easily twice, maybe three times that. That's the thing. These national bodies are falling out of favour and they're becoming less of a necessity as people start getting into things like freestyle drones. The freestyle drone community is great. Usually it's a, it's a few texts go around and people all roll up at one location and start flying. There's no formal um, structure to it. It's just people that they use social media to communicate and, and, and it's a much more laid back, you know, everyone looks out for each other. Everyone makes sure that everyone's safe. And because one of the things that really annoys me, whenever you get clubs and official groups, you get committees and then the membership complains, the committee's made a decision they don't agree with. And then somebody doesn't like this president or that secretary. And there's all this political infighting. And it's, oh, that's why where I fly, we, we don't have a formal club structure. We are just like the freestyle community. A group of people roll up. We're affiliated to the national body, which gives us insurance. But other than that, there's no there's no um, authority levels. You know, everyone is equal, and everyone has a responsibility for their own safety and the safety of everybody that's on the field. Yeah, I'm do you have ask to? You about that. Do you yeah, have to maintain yeah. that field in any way? Um, we don't legally. It's it's a it's a pu public full-size airfield so that the, yeah. the owners the council are supposed to keep it all thing but i mow our strip and i clean up and you know I've, I've been the unofficial airfield caretaker for 20 years now and when if i'm out there working in the winter and someone comes in because the conditions are bad and they they have to land because they can't get through to where they're going i give them a cup of coffee and sit down and have a chat and whatever it's you know i'm just there most of the time and that's it but i mean officially i don't have to do a damn thing i, I pay a lease for my the ground in which my hangar sits and that's supposed to cover all the costs yeah and i think that's kind of the scenario that makes 
the clubs and committees a necessary evil once they have assets, whether it's a clump of land or they have to mow in a shed and all those things. That uh, brings in the administrative part. That's not so fun and not so easy. Listen, to do. I enjoy. I, I, I'm in theory, I'm retired, although I work full time on YouTube and all this other stuff. Right. But um, I really enjoy getting out there mowing grass. I don't mind tidying up. I've got a hanger. Everyone's entitled right. to use it. They use my power to charge their batteries on the field. It's like we don't need a structure to manage those assets because what's mine is yours, and you know away we go. I. I it's my way of paying back the people who appear in my videos for their appearance. I mean, they they get free stuff off me and they can charge the batteries and there's coffee and there's cold drinks in the summer and that. I provide all that stuff because I'm getting value out of them because I'm able to film them and make videos which people enjoy. Right. Well, I, unfortunately, I think not every club has the benefit of a magnanimous member like you. So, Well, they should. Uh, they, you're <laughs> right. Absolutely. And so, Fitz, I know I'll cut you off. So I'm sorry. I'll shut up. Well, I was actually just, what I was going to ask about is home flying field. I was very curious about. I've seen it in the videos. It looked like a full scale aircraft uh, airport. Um, it, do you have much air traffic? Do you have to pause your flying often? No, we, we used to have a lot, but manned aviation is in decline. I don't know if it is the same in the USA, but there's nowhere near as much manned aviation as there used to be. The costs are going up. The regulatory compliance is, is going up. So we used to get on a weekend, we might have, you know, maybe a dozen aircraft coming during uh, the period we're out there. And there would normally be three or four aircraft parked up. These days, we, we quite often, the whole day, we don't see an airplane. But we've been flying there for 20 years. Never had an incident and never had any any safety issues whatsoever. During the last 18 months alone, there's been two manned aircraft crashes involving hospitalization of two people. And on the weekend, they ran some drag racing there and one guy's in hospital in an induced coma because he flipped his car. And, and we are the safest users of the airfield. We don't cause any problems. We, we don't create any injuries or anything and and i say I'm, I'm safety conscious i designed the ads blm to give us that extra layer of protection not required by law the, the ca doesn't mandate it but i did it because i think it's a good move for safety and the, the irony is that if i then resign from model flying new zealand i won't even be able to fly within four kilometers of their field um because reasons because you're Just a menace yeah, because I'm a menace, even though I'm the guy that's overseen 20 years of utterly safe flying, model flying at a full-size airport. <laughs> are are uh, civil aviation in New Zealand mandated to have ADS-B on aircraft? Um, uh, not in Class G, only in controlled airspace. Okay. So if, if uh, you've noticed that I'm looking down into the side a little bit, I apologize. I'm in my office here, and there's a door with a window. My dog was looking through that window with the, I really got a pee look. So uh, <laughs> I had texted my daughter to take him out. So I'm trying to see if that's actually happened, mm -hmm. but uh, we'll assume that it has. So sorry if I appeared distracted there, mm -hmm. um, but that's a, a, go ahead, Fitz. I just had another off the wall question. Are there many hobby stores in where you are? No. No, the hobby stores, um, because we've got online, it's quite convenient, but there are no hobby stores in our town. Can't buy balsa wood here. And that's one thing that annoys me too. You can't buy balsa wood anywhere. And even when you can, it's usually rubbish. You know, I used to love going down to the model shop and you'd go to the big stack of balsa and you'd, you'd get your nice um, cross grain for the ribs and then you'd get a quarter grain for the ribs and you get nice curvy stuff for the leading edge sheeting and you get the light blocks. And these days, if you order online, it's whatever you get, it's what you get. And usually it's horrendously expensive. I can see why foam board has taken over from balsa wood. And that's where flight test probably made their big breakthroughs a, a material that can get locally and it's cheap and it's durable and that's that made the big turnaround i don't think people i couldn't afford to build a model out of balsa these days i'm not quite at that point yet but yeah the last time i bought balsa at a hobby shop was a couple of weeks ago 
and they had a good selection of sizes, but it was all pretty dense stuff. And hmm. I just had to make do with expensive? what I had. Um, I didn't think so. It seemed reasonable, but I'm probably not well calibrated on that. Because we're paying, last time I bought something, it was like $4 for a sheet of um, 3 by one sixteenth by 36. Crazy price. Okay. I don't know what exchange rate is for New Zealand and the US, but... It's about 0.75. So that, the American money okay. would be about $2.80. Oh, I would think that's pretty good then. Yeah, that sounds yeah. pretty good. Yeah. 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 Right. When I was a kid, I used to when I I used to mow grass and you know, mow the lawns of the neighbors and things, and I'd get my, my pocket money and I'd go to the shop. And even though I didn't have a plan on the board, I'd just spend all my money buying bolsa stock. And I could buy yeah. come home from with my little, you know, fifty cents or something out of mowing lawns for the week, I could come home with a stack of bolsa that thick and yeah. fifty cents was in more then. But it was still much cheaper compared to other commodities than it is today. Yeah, for sure. And um, there's been a lot of theory that the the price spike and somewhat shortage is based on them being used in uh, wind turbine blades. I yeah. don't know how much truth there is in that, but that's what I've heard. So. Yeah, it's just, yeah, but it, it really is a shame because I really, I don't say much, I really say enjoyed, build, I never built stuff from, from kits or anything. I always did scratch builds because designing and getting something out of your own mind to fly was always the the exciting thing and doing something unorthodox. I used to do lots of flying wings before flying wings were things and canards and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Fitz and I are into unusual airplanes as well. So there's a, yeah, a certain joy that real, comes from that. I got a real kick out of your um, Pulse Jet Long Easy model. Yep, yep. I've got another one on the build actually. I got, oh, yeah. I got one, uh, for, yeah, Bill, one of the guys I fly with, he had one of those same kits that he had in a cupboard for, you know, 15 years. And he said, oh, you can have it. So I've started building that up with a pulse jet on it. So hopefully I'll uh, get to fly that again. Probably not at the airfield because I won't be able to if I resign from the national model flying body. All right. So going back to a topic we touched on earlier, um, the Flight Test Community Association and FPV Freedom Coalition, they've started an effort to raise that threshold of registration and, and all those things from what is currently 250 grams up to one kilogram, which I think that pretty much captures just about everything in the flight test library and probably the great majority of FPV quads. Yeah. So I think for the stuff that those groups typically fly, that would be a huge win if they're able to pull that off. And Bruce, you mentioned that the AME's uh, on board with that. So I think it would be a much smaller proportion of your traditional yeah. AMA member, but that doesn't mean it's still not a, a beneficial thing. So I know you've got some opinions on this, Bruce, and you said a, a little while ago that you didn't necessarily agree with the manner in which they're rolling this out. So give us the elevator pitch on the chances of success and what you think the, the right thing to do is here. Well, I think we have to look, as we've already discussed, why are the rules there? Are they there for safety? Not really. Are they there for security? Not really. So what are the odds they're just going to say, nah? The only reason I believe the 250 gram cutoff is there because the, the regulators do not want to be seen to be requiring children to register the little toy drones they get in their Christmas stockings. You know, you, we can't see the government regulating children's toys. That would be a bad look in the eyes of the public, the voting public. So we have to draw a threshold in there. I don't think they're going to go up to one kilogram um, because it, it opens too many doors. And in fact, in Japan, they went from 250 down to 200 because I think they deemed that 250 gram drones were getting too capable for their for their comfort zone. So they dropped it down to, to 200. And DJI brought out a special battery pack for the Mini, which brings it down to 199 grams with a shorter flight time to allow for that. So 
Yeah, I, I, I wish, I certainly hope they succeed, but I, I don't know that they will. I'm not confident because firstly, I don't think there is uh, the appetite for change within the FAA. And also, I don't think they're being smart about the way they're doing it. I really, I mean, I've done, I've seen these campaigns before where people have done these copy and paste things and they've never been effective. If, if I was somewhere sitting there and I got all these letters or emails with the same stuff in them, I'm going to say these people can't even be bothered putting down their own words. They're just copy and pasting. I, I would discount the value of their opinion because they're just, you know, it could be a, a bot doing all this stuff, right? Um, but when someone takes the time to actually write their own thoughts in their own words and then is clever enough to request a response, your opinion on this, please. So you can't just say, we acknowledge your receipt of your letter. I want your opinion. So they have to read it to form an opinion and then reply. That puts that big work burden on the people you're writing to. And then at some stage they go, enough of this. I'm getting tired of all this. We'll have to do something. That's when you get action. And copy and paste, it's just it's just another number. Oh, we got 400 copies of that. Okay, 400. But when you've got 400 replies to write with, with a, a, an opinion, that gets a hell of a lot harder. I wonder if it matters anymore if we send electronically versus snail mail hard copies i don't know if it does or not i mean most of the, most of the time I, I i actually honestly believe that in a lot of politicians offices the the uh, the interns or whatever print it out and put it on their desk because <laughs> i don't know that these guys are that savvy to be honest if they were that savvy they wouldn't be working in politics and have a real job <laughs> <laughs> well i do think there's a recent example of this sort of campaign being successful where the ama had asked for that push and they got 50,000 something letters written. And that's what helped get things back to where they are today, where the FRIAs are a little bit more manageable and things like that. They did, the FAA did backtrack on a few things. And that seems to be attributable to that write-in campaign. I think um, the FAA had to backtrack a little because they must not only be um, uh, listening, but be seen to listen. And backtracking on the FRIAs thing, I mean, was, I mean, that was ridiculous. Only a fixed number of FRIAs in that age out. There's no way, that would be cancelling the hobby. So they knew that. Yeah, and what happens with these regulators, quite often they'll they'll put in to an NPRM more than they want. So they can backtrack to what they actually wanted and appear to have listened to the people that responded. It's a calculated ploy. So that the people can say, you never listened to us. Say, oh, yes, we did. I mean, this is a, a, a strategy that, that I use when I'm in negotiation. Always ask for more than you want. And then when you seem to settle, you're actually getting exactly what you wanted. You're so magnanimous. Wow, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, that theory was tossed around at the time as well. Yeah. Um, so part of what I see in this, and Bruce, feel free to share as much or as little of your opinions on this as you want. But my perception in this is that the Flight Test Community Association, Association is kind of showing their naivete in this, that I respect that they want to do good things and I respect that they want to try to fix this situation for them. But, you know, in the past few weeks, they've come out with the, suddenly the whole Freya thing is a big hurdle where it's been a hurdle for a long time. I'm not sure why they seem surprised by that. And then the one kilogram thing seems like a great idea, but it also seems like the way they rolled it out was, all right, we got to do something. Here's our idea. Roll it. We'll fix it later. Where maybe not exactly how you would have pictured it, but I would have hoped that they would try to do all this coordination they're doing now before they do the rollout so they can get their ducks in a row and, and have a good plan going forward where it seems like they just threw it out there to get something going and, it might be too late to to fix it the way it should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I have concerns also because if flight test, and when I was on a stream with Dave Messina and, and Josh, um, Dave Messina kept, 
kept saying it again and again, flight test has got a connection with over 2 million hobbyists. You know, 2 million hobbyists. And that's true. They have 2 million subscribers on their flight test channel. But they're putting this out on their flight test community association channel with 10,000 subscribers. If they're really committed to this, why is the video on their 10,000 subscriber channel not on their 2 million um, subscriber channel? It's, it strikes me as they want to be seen to be doing something. Um, and so they can say, at least we tried, you know, and, and we're heroes because we tried. But are they fully committed to it? Um, I, I don't know. And the other thing with FPV Freedom Coalition is this is a group that, that should be representing all the FPV flyers in America. Yet they have a few hundred members, I think maybe a thousand, I don't know, I can't remember the exact number, but it's a lot less. It's a very small percentage of FPV flyers. And when I go to their town hall meetings, there's one on right now, I think, um, online on their Discord server, it's like eight or 10 people out of all the FPV flyers in the USA. I'm thinking they they are there to represent the people, but if, if the vast majority of those people aren't even members or interfacing with them, who are they representing? Right. Yeah. And I don't want to give them grief over this. Again, I respect that they're trying to do something yeah, yeah. positive. Um, but you know, the one potential reason that they did it on their FTCA channel versus their flight test channel is FTCA is a nonprofit organization. Flight test is a for-profit thing. I wonder if there's some rules about what their nonprofit can share on their profit side. You just all I have to do is say go over to our non-profit FTCA channel and see what we're doing to try and protect the hobby. No commercial, no commercial benefit to that. And it's just like I could, as a business with a YouTube channel, I could say, well, I have said go to the FTC, uh, the FPV Human Coalition page and look at the campaign and join in, but use your own words. I'm a commercial entity, but I've done it, and it's no disadvantage to either of us. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's got to be some workaround for that, but. I haven't seen that happen yet, so I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the, 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 the you know, I think they're trying to put a kind of. They, they sent me an email saying, "Can you do a read the script for this?" You know, I'm going to do this video with all the influencers on board, and I said, "You're welcome to excerpt anything from the video I've done." But I, I, I really am so um, disappointed that they're going to do this copy and paste. I don't know that I want to be part of something that I believe is actually going to fail because they're not taking the simple step of encouraging people to use their own words. And that, as I've seen this so many times, the, the massively greater effect that using your own words and asking for a response has just copy and paste. It's just, it's like, you know, as I say, bots could do it. So it has very little uh, weight when it comes to influencing decision makers. Right. And I, like you, I question that 2 million number. I fully mm. expect that, or I recognize that they have 2 million subscribers to their channel, yeah. but how many people watch the Dukes of Hazard on a Friday night? Are they all jumping 69 chargers over the bridge? No. I mean, just because people are watching doesn't necessarily mean they're modelers. Is it a good percentage of that? Probably. Is it more members than the AMA has? Yeah, I would suspect. Well, you only have to look at videos. I mean, like I've got 190,000 subs on my XJet channel, but my videos get on average probably 12,000, 15,000 views. I'm, all those people aren't watching every video I make. A popular video might get millions, but most people, most people with channels get, you're lucky to get five or 10% of your actual subscription base watching as an average view on your videos. That's just right. the way it works, especially with the larger channels. People subscribe and then they don't, you know, I have like my feeds full of videos I never watch because unless it's something, even though I'm subscribed, unless it's something that actually captures my attention, I just skip past it because there's so much other stuff to see. And that's the right. thing. So they've got 2 million subscribers of which I would say between 5 and 10% are active watchers of the channel. 
Right. Yeah, I I guess my hope is that they're not moving forward under the assumption that they have that full weight behind them. And but Dave which, Messina which, seems convinced they are. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah. I, more power to them if they do. But yeah, yeah I, I would think there's a different approach when you have 50,000 versus 2 million or, or whatever the numbers are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a bit more humility and a bit more strategy than they seem to be showing right now. That's right. We've got to play, we've got to be smart. I mean, the thing I I, I won't I say I'm just I'm disappointed. I mean, I say this is what I've been doing for the last fifty years is is dealing with these bureaucrats and this abuse of power that seems to be so rampant and it's got worse of late. And as I say, I've learned an awful lot, usually by making an awful lot of mistakes. I'm happy mm -hmm. to share the benefits of what I've learned, save people making the same mistakes, but people don't they don't have to listen, um, but I would love it to, you know, if people, anyone that wants the benefit of my advice, it's free, it's worth what you pay for it. Um, I just, I can see people making these mistakes again. And and I just think, oh, you could have done so much better. Right. Yeah. So to be clear, I've probably said it before, I'm behind them. I, I want to do whatever <laughs> I can to help their effort and all that. I, I just, yeah, I wish there, there was a little bit more thought put into it on the front end. So and this, I, this I hope they don't problem. take any of this. This is the problem we face as a hobby, and, and it shows very much. You know, the, the regulators want to lump us all together with with DJI drone operators and so forth, but as a community, we are without a single voice, and that just weakens us so much. We we right. and this shows that the that we're lumped in with the the actual hobby, the the traditional hobby does have a pretty good voice. You've got the AMA, and you've got groups like Flight Test that represent the hobby, but the DJI drone community, they're all disparate. They're all people who have a flying camera. They're not in it for flying. They're in it because they've got a camera. They can move around the sky. And a lot of these people only use it when they go on holiday. It's just like the, you know, the, the, the SLR in their, in their luggage. It's just an appliance that they use. They're not part of a hobby of flying drones. The drone is just right. something they use when they're doing something else. And so these people are never going to become activists and support rights and privileges. They don't even know what's going on. They've got no clues, which is probably why so many of them do silly things. Um, so, but because we're lumped in there, um, we are effectively part of a million plus community. And if we get 20,000 voices, what percentage is that of million plus? But 20,000 voices out of 200,000, that's a much bigger proportion. And I honestly sure. believe that the regulators have done this to disempower us as the traditional hobby. Right. You know, kind of related to that, there was a time a couple of years ago where I was managing the social media accounts for Dubro and at the same time, uh, Master Airscrew. And Master Airscrew had moved out of the traditional role of making propellers for model airplanes. They still did that, but the real bread and butter was making quieter propellers for the camera drones, the Mavics and the Phantoms and things like that. And that really became the bulk of their sales. And in managing those two different accounts online, you could really see the huge gap between the hobbyists who are buying the Dubro stuff and following the Dubro threads and the, the Walmart Phantom buyers who were buying the Master Airscrew stuff. It was just, you can't even compare the comments, the knowledge, the, the experience. There's just no overlap there. Yeah, it, completely. And that really hit home to me looking at those two things in detail every day. Yeah. The other thing I, I get really annoyed about is is the way we're treated differently to other things. Like you go and buy yourself a Ferrari or a Porsche or a Lamborghini. Um, you put it on the road, you drive it, whatever the posted speed limit is. Those are the rules. You can't break them or you get into trouble, right? But on a Sunday, you can go down to the local racetrack on track day and you can drive that thing as fast as you want. You can do burnouts, drifts, all that sort of stuff. You're not going to get a ticket, not going to lose your license, not going to get a fine because you have a track where you can, the, the rules of the road no longer apply. 
where is the track for model aircraft and drone users? Where can we go and fly above 400 feet beyond visual line of sight in a controlled environment where we pose no risk to anybody else? Why can't we do that? Just like you do with your Lamborghini and your Ferrari. Why are we forbidden to use the capabilities of our craft um, when we can do it in a safe way, just as the people can do it on track day in a safe day? What, what, what's so different about us? Well, isn't that the concept of a Freya? No, because the rules aside. Yeah, you still can't fly FPV without a spotter. You can't fly beyond visual line of sight. The, most of the rules still apply in a Freya. Hmm. It's like saying, we've got, a, we've got a track day and you can do whatever, you can burn out, but you can, can't drive over 50 miles an hour. <laughs> what? <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, we're going to have to build a big dome or something. <laughs> well, uh, my actually, a virtual dome, because what I'm proposing, and I'm going to try and fundraise for this, is um, a model park we can set up where it is. it becomes, because, you know, one of the problems we get with these people, and it's in the hobby as well, but mainly people that buy these drones is they get them out. I wonder how high it'll go. I wonder how far it'll go. They think everybody tries it because they want to know. And in doing that, they start posing a threat to people, a risk to other people's safety because they're flying high in an area where there may be aircraft. They're flying a long way away, maybe flying over other people's property. These things do represent a safety problem. So if we get an area, maybe, you know, about 10 square miles that we, we lease the flying rights for and we um, have a boundaries that are clearly marked and you can do whatever you like in there. You can go to 10,000 feet if your drone is, or your model is capable of it. You can fly beyond visual line of sight as long as you don't leave the area. And then the airspace regulator says, this is a danger area. It's not safe for manned aircraft to fly through here. So we are basically forbidding manned aviation from passing through this area because the risk to them is too high. And then we get to have our fun manned aviation safe. Everybody wins. Is there a precedent for that with other uses where there's a column carved out of the sky? That... Yeah, when the president visits anywhere. Okay. We okay. also, I think model rocketry can do that on on occasion. You can have a, a zone for high-powered rockets. Um, air, what we call air identification zones, like what Bruce was talking about, president arrives or somebody of prominence, they can shut down the airspace mm. as well. These are mm, interesting. Said, I want a permanent zone so that it's because then you have to pilots don't have to check no TAMs and make sure they're up to date. They just Correct. know it, you, you can't go there. Okay, that's it. Because one of the things that annoys me is under the rules all over the world, and this is my global perspective, the one rule that applies everywhere is that unmanned aircraft must always give way to manned aircraft. That is the so it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how much you're following the rules, doesn't matter how much the manned pilot isn't following the rules. If there's a collision, it's the unmanned aircraft pilot's fault. So if you're flying at, you know, just above the treetops and a helicopter comes through flying below in an area where it's not authorized to fly and it crashes into your drone, you're in trouble. And that's almost happened to us. We were flying in a forest and there was a little clearing flying freestyle drones and we were flying in and we'd just pop up and then dive back down. And then we were all sitting around having a, a, a you know, a bit of a break and an R-22 went overhead and it was so windy it blew things off the tables that were on that we had our drone set up on. And it flew straight over and because of the trees, you couldn't hear it coming. And like... If we'd been popping up and down, we were flying by the rules. But if he'd crashed into us, we'd have been in trouble. Sure. Wow. Rules don't always protect you. Yeah. And so it's time, given given the much higher risk involved in operations in the zero to 400 foot area, it's time that the manned aviation rules were adjusted to compensate for that risk. Rules are about reducing risk. It is now no longer safe for manned aircraft to just fly below 500 feet whenever they want to because there could be drones there. That's just a fact of life. So the, the, the regulator should be should be really saying no manned aviation below 500 feet without, unless you're taking off or landing or you've issued an OTAM to cover that area. Then that would make it much safer for manned aviation. All right. Hmm. 
All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and talk about things I know absolutely nothing about. That's what so, I've been doing for the last hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so when all of this hoopla started back, the first thing was registration. I think there was some controversy or some debate within the AMA of, do we try to absorb these GPS phantom pilots or do we draw a clear line and separate ourselves? And again, not being privy to any of those conversations that happened at the time, I think they landed on the side of trying to absorb them and thus capture all these potential modelers into our number. Yeah. We're going to need all the numbers we can get, not necessarily to boost the AMA, but to boost modeling and our numbers to resist these things. So it would be interesting who we are seven or eight years later. What are the metrics that say how many of those Phantom and Mavic pilots did transition into the hobby? I know a few personally where it did happen. So the number's not zero, but was it 5%? Was it 20%? So did the GPS guided drones, were they actually a gateway into RC, traditional RC or a passing fad for a lot of people? I don't, I don't think so because we've already determined that most people with GPS guided drones are not interested in flying. They're interested in getting pictures and it's they, they, they don't have that interest and there's not necessarily a gateway. You know, they want to get lovely shots while they're on holiday or, or lovely panoramic vistas, that sort of thing. I know a lot of photographers that have bought Mavics and Minis because not because they want to fly anything, they just want to get those shots. And so I think the AMA made a big mistake there. Um, and I, I, one has to, putting my cynical hat on, um, it was lots of money for memberships if we open the doors to these people, but it weakened their case to have them have the hobby, the traditional hobby separated out and treated differently because they were willing to welcome them in. Also, they say they welcomed them in, but I've spoken to so many quad pilots, freestyle quad pilots, who've said, we've gone to AMA clubs and we've just been shown the door. So the, the AMA executive may have said we're coming in, but at a club level, most of them, well, the ones I've spoken to were told, no, go away, we're not interested. Yeah, and I think that's probably a hard thing to to convey to different clubs, to just say, these are our friends, we need to interact, accept them as your own. And, and I think the FBV people are probably the easiest of that group to bring in. It's the, because they had to learn how to fly, and they ha had to put yeah. some skill, They most likely they built their quad, and yeah. they, they have some knowledge and some interest in maintaining this, whereas they didn't go down to Kmart and buy a Phantom. So... You know, I don't necessarily buy the the theory that they did it for the money because model aviation, like full scale aviation, there's no money in it. How do you make who a, would pay, a who would pay Lee if the AMA didn't have all this money? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they're a nonprofit, right? So it doesn't I mean think, the people working for them don't get paid. Well, sure, they get paid. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody there's getting so rich. If you're, if you're in the employee of the AMA in a decision-making capacity, you want to make sure there's enough money to pay your wages. So even though it's non-profit, it's good to have the extra cash flow. I guess. The, I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. And they knew by doing so, they were also going to accept additional burden. Does that burden outweigh the, the income? I, probably in the end, again, all this is yeah. predicated on the assumption that these were decisions that were actually made. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think in hindsight, they might have done it differently. But uh, 
Yeah, but did they, just, how widely did they consult? That was the problem. Did, did they consult with membership? Because one of the things you said, what would I do if I was the AMA president? Well, actually, to be honest, the first thing I'd do is I'd have a massive consultation with members because it's not my job to make decisions on their behalf without them advising what they want. I should be working for them doing what they want, not just coming up with my own ideas. And if they all said, oh, we're happy with the status quo, then I'd say, right, that's it. This organisation suits the needs of its members. There's nothing I can do. And if I want to see change, I'd go and start a new organization or, or do what I'm doing now, which is basically, you know, trying to get people to take responsibility for their own safety and their own actions. Yeah, my memory is um, traditionally not very good. So I don't remember any effort like that. What I do seem to recall is there was a presidential election at the time and the campaigns were based kind of along those lines of we accept them or we reject them. And the, as I recall, the president who won was on the let's let's bring them inside. Um, so wash all that off. It's dirty. I, I, it came right out of my fanny. Um, but that's just, that's <laughs> so the way have, I remember. They should have done the research. Though. Should have done the research. One thing I always do is research. Data is your friend when you're, when you're engaged in an argument. And if you, if you know the data, if you know the, the facts, you're much better equipped to, to make decisions. And the fact that they didn't go out and analyze the profile of the average DJI drone owner and see whether they'd actually want to come in um, was a big mistake because they probably would have found we're not interested. You know, we, we're busy. With, this is our drone for photography and for going on holiday. We don't want to become part of a group of people that fly model airplanes. We're not, we don't have a model airplane. We're going to drone. I think they would have got that feedback overwhelmingly and then therefore said, well, maybe we would be better to try and actually separate ourselves away from all these regulations affecting drones. Yeah, maybe. I know there was a, a lot of criticism of that, uh, at least uh, publicly on the forums and so forth. They felt that the AMA shouldn't have been so receptive to the drone community and uh, some animosity towards AMA for uh, what they perceive as lack of engagement with uh, uh, resisting uh, these onerous rules. Yeah, it's hindsight is a, a powerful thing here. Um, I firmly believe that the AMA leadership was doing what they thought was right. Um, whether but they should have been doing what the membership thought was right. It's not their job to make decisions all the time on behalf of the membership in such critical, crucial areas. There must always be a consultative process. And I believe in referendum. You've got, the social, you've got social media. You could run a poll of your members in, an, you know, in a day, give them time to respond, and you get that feedback. There's no excuse now for just saying, oh, we're going to make this decision because it's too hard to ask all the members. The members are all there. They're online. Give them the opportunity to have their say. If they don't have their say, they can't complain. That's how democracy works. Yep. And things like that may have happened. I just don't remember. Um, I do think there's an element of ambiguity and all of that, that if you ask everybody to respond, you're probably lucky to get 10% to respond and to that. The and the 10% the, the who do respond are going to be the at the opposite ends of the spectrum, the, the most vocal. Um, yep. And then if you're looking to get input from the, the DJI owners, they don't know what they don't know. So I think that was part of the issue that they didn't realize that they were flying model aircraft. And how do you convince well, no, them that that's the direction? are not flying model on. aircraft. We're flying well, drones. But, <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. when you talk about drones, I mean, to me, a drone is a Phantom 4, a Mavic or whatever. This is not a drone. This is a quadcopter. A drone is something you can just push the stick up and it takes off and sits there and you can move it around. This is something you must fly every second of the flight. If you just let go of the sticks, it'll just keep going crash into something. And if you give this to a regulator, if you get someone from the FIA, sit them down and say, here, have a fly of this, they won't be able to fly it. Completely incapable of flying, unless they've done it before, which they won't have done, but they can fly a Mavic or a Phantom. That's the big difference. This is the huge divide. Right. And again, that's from my perspective where the line should have been drawn from the beginning, automation versus none. 
So yep. And even as an FPV flyer who occasionally has craft with flight controllers and GPS with return to home, I'd be willing to consider those to be drones and regulated accordingly because it would give me the freedom to fly my non-GPS craft without all these ridiculous burdens and restrictions. Yep, I agree. And I think I might have said that at the time when I had, and I still have some GPS guided stuff. I can accept that they are they represent a different level of risk that should be governed differently. So, and here we are. If you're going to agree with me, there's no point in having this stream. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. If we all agree, we're one yeah. of us or two of us are redundant. Yeah. So. Okay. Right. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, um, that's everything that I had on my list. Um, Fitz, did you have any more questions for Bruce? I do not. I think we really touched on everything I could think of. And then some extra on top of that. And then the so, more, yes. <laughs> well, Bruce, do you have any uh, closing statements or questions for us that you want to throw out there? No, I'm always very understated. I don't like to speak much. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we can tell. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, we'll include okay. links to your stuff on our release notes, but uh, what are your, your YouTube channel and your website details? Yeah, well, my YouTube is XJet. Um, I have RC model reviews as well, but unfortunately with the recent um, pandemic um, and the changes in shipping costs and things, it's been very hard to get products for review. You know, shipping is terrible at the moment. Spying, if everything's gone up in price and the, the delivery times are ridiculous and sometimes they don't arrive at all. So I've lost a little bit of focus on RC model reviews. I'm going to go back to that because this ADSB alarm will be documented there and the build project will be on there. I'm going to focus perhaps a little more on the technology side of things, explaining tech, which is one of the things I'm probably better at than reviewing these days, explaining tech and, and some DIY projects and so forth because every man and his dog is now reviewing product. And when I started, I was one of the only ones and I want to retain a point of distinction so i'm happy to pass on my knowledge as as an electronics engineer and as a materials engineer um, where i can to help people make better use of the hobby enjoy the hobby more and cut their costs so that'll be sort of pivoting a little bit towards the the information channel the knowledge channel and xjet is basically where i crusade for the hobby and promote it because we got to keep promoting it and you know when i do a video and if i'm lucky and it gets hundreds of thousands of views every one of those is a potential new entrant to the hobby sure so this begs the question, the technical side of you, let's say tomorrow Hobby King releases their the remote ID module. Are they still that, a thing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Choose your favorite Chinese manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, is that something you would be on board with reviewing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm certainly, you know, have a look, but these things are going to be a little bit of a non-event. I mean, I expect the price point will be around about the 50 US when they finally come out. Um, and the, the irony is that if you've got a 250 gram drone, you're going to be adding a probably a 25, 30 gram dead weight to it just to comply with the regulations. Um, but I'll look at it and review it. There's, not, there's nothing to see here move along, basically. If they work according to the specification, then they're all going to be pretty much the same and there won't be really anything to to say um, except don't put one on your model <laughs> right <laughs> i may do some projects i've had some projects there's people working on um remote id throwies and things and i think one of the things where the freestyle community is really going to be good is you're probably going to find remote id broadcasts popping up all over the place as people attach remote id throwies to their quads land them on tall buildings and well out of the way and they'll just randomly broadcast random remote id signals that will pollute the waves so you you know there'll be drones that don't exist ghost drones everywhere and that will just be an example of civil disobedience that that the regulator will have to realize people are not happy with this 
but pardon my ignorance, are you saying throwaways or throwies? A throwie. A throwie is an electronic device that usually you have a sticky on it or something. You throw it into an inaccessible place and then it does its work. Yeah. So you'll have a it'll be broadcasting completely random <laughs> locations and things so the drones will, if you get your app out there'll be drones all over the place but there's none to be seen <laughs> gotcha okay interesting yeah. so. because you've perched it on the ledge of a tall building you know the only way they're going to get it down is to is to have a, the drone of their own or a ladder or a crane or something you know so it makes life very inconvenient for people but it's not a risk to anybody right hmm. all right Bruce, all have right. you ever been to the states uh, yeah, I was over there in 2003, I think. I was a technical advisor on an episode of um, Junkyard Mega Wars when we built Pulse Jet Powered Boat at the Long Beach Marina and raced it, yeah. Wow. Uh, interesting. So I remember that show. Um, Fitz, you know, one of the guys who was a flight controller uh, when I was there, he was in Junkyard Wars. I don't remember which episode it was, but, yeah, that was a big thing back in the day. Yeah. And you remember I did the UK one as well, which is Scrappy Challenge, which was the sort of the original series. It was a re it was amazing. I went over there and I, I spent a week there doing the, the UK one. And then I went to America and I could not believe the difference in cultures. It was absolutely gobsmacking. It was like two different planets, not just two different countries. Huh. Two countries, uh, was it? Connected separated by, by a comma language? Yeah, separated by yeah. comma language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, when I went to the UK, like, for example, even just food, you know, when we had a break at lunchtime, it was sausages and fried bacon and, and fried bread and all the unhealthy stuff that you're supposed to keep away from, but tastes so nice. And then I go to America in LA, lunch break, it's all tofu and um, purified <laughs> orange juice and bean sprouts. <laughs> just, well, that's, it doesn't count. All right. So that long ago, I'm sure any NDA you signed is no longer relevant. So right. are there, were there gems that purposely hidden in those piles? Those aren't just random trash. Piles, oh, no, right? no. It's all, it's all, you know, you, as a expert, expert, someone who's responsible for the, the design and the build, um, they ask, what do you need? And so you give them a parts list and then they just seed them in the junk area, you know, so that they, they get see. found. And usually they don't put the, the, the key crucial point component in until right at the very end. So people are looking for it, can't find it because it's not there yet, you know. <laughs> and and then it's a, there is this, there's a build day and a race day, but there's a day in between. That's when people like me go in and fix up all the mistakes they've made and actually make sure it'll actually work. Because when you've got a, in the case of the junkyard, uh, junkyard wars one, um, when the craft, when you've got, people who are um, artists building jet engines, they don't quite <laughs> grasp what they should be doing. So they had to rebuild the whole damn thing. <laughs> uh, that's funny. All right. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us and carving uh, some time out of your busy schedule. We do appreciate all of your input on this. And uh, I, I think my prediction was probably mostly true. We agree on more than we disagree on. So we're yeah, not I'll in lock. Yeah, come around to see it our way. So yeah, we're not in lockstep yet, but uh, I, I think we have plenty of common ground to work from. So thank you for sharing yeah. your perspective on all these things. And Try I, and stop me. Appreciate it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, we've just got to provoke the conversation. I, sometimes I play devil's advocate as well because I want people to stop and think. Um, they, I, I, people don't have to agree with me. In fact, I love it when people don't agree with me because if everyone's just yes, 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 you never learn anything. I, I'm always open to other people's perspectives and I change my mind quite often because of what people have said and I listen and sometimes I realize their point of view has actually got more valid, more valid than my point of view. So I'll, I'll change my mind and I wish more people would do that. 
So, all right. Well, that's a good perspective to have. So I think the willingness to change your mind is a, a better sign of intelligence than, <laughs> than your, uh, what's the word? Your persuasiveness or your, uh, <laughs> that's not the right word, but your uh, forcefulness. Maybe that's dogged right. determination. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, I do appreciate your input on all this and uh, this has been fun. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, Lee, you missed on all missed out on all the fun, man. You could have been here. <laughs> we'll have to have a follow up uh, with yeah. Lee on board. So yeah, and we <laughs> just can just sit around the campfire and sing "Kumbaya" or something, you know. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so okay, so uh, to close this out, I'm going to hit our outro here. Bruce, please hang on until you see the message that says your your local recording has finished. So uh, I don't here have we go. a local recording. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So so hopefully it did. Yeah, hopefully it did the group recording. So, Fitz, you want to do your usual uh, goodbyes? Well, you laying it on me, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I can't say anything else more than what Terry said. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Bruce and Micha, it's just uh, fascinating to meet another YouTube personality. And uh, this has been a very, very interesting conversation. I think um, you know we all can't agree on everything, but I think any new idea, any good idea, it should be brought to the table. And I think we're all ultimately working towards the same goal. So uh, we may have professional disagreements. I'm not saying I do, but it just if we do, especially our third person that's not here. Um, but I think he's passionate. Uh, he's passionate, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but ultimately, Bruce, I really appreciate you. You know, you being a one of them foreigners, uh, being really uh, aggressive on how things are going on here and around the world. It, it's really that's a really amazing thing, and I really appreciate it that your tenacity in trying to at least move the needle over to uh, in the service of uh, our fellow hobbyists around the world. It's uh, very much appreciated. Uh, and and on that note, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you. It's fun we got a chance to meet and uh, get together. Uh, you be you. And <laughs> we will see you uh, later on the internets. <laughs> Live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. Please visit our website at www.table.com <coughs> where you can send us comments and suggestions or listen to our other great podcasts. Where you will also find links to our iTunes and social media sites. Thanks for listening. <laughs>